Radio Mano Papachango. Spotted Hawk swoops by and accuses me. He complains of my gab and my loitering. I too am not a bit tamed. I too am untranslatable. I sound my barbaric yop over the roofs of the world. The last scud of day holds back for me. It flings my likeness after the rest and true as any on the shadowed wilds. It coaxes me to the vapor and the dusk. I depart as air. I shake my locks at the runaway sun. I effuse my flesh in eddies and drift it in lacy jags. I bequeath myself to the dirt to grow from the grass I love. If you want me again, look for me under your boot soles. You will hardly know who I am or what I mean, but I shall be good health to you nevertheless and filter and fiber your blood. Failing to fetch me at first, keep encouraged. Missing me one place, search another. I stop somewhere waiting for you. That's the last stanza of a poem called Song of Myself by Walt Whitman. Uh, if you're into poetry at all, if you're into, I don't know, reading the words of someone who simultaneously gave zero fucks and gave every fuck that's your guy Walt Whitman holy shit he was a real free thinker and what i what i love about his poetry is that he wrote it in a way that speaks to you from beyond the grave he was you know he and carsey blanton have that in common that sort of acute awareness that their life is a segment of something much larger uh, within which they fit, and that speaking from that segment, their voice can ripple out beyond the confines of their own life. And Walt Whitman certainly understood that. Um, yeah, that poem's amazing. There are lots of sections of it that are incredible, uh, but that that last stanza just always blows my fucking mind when I read it. Um, okay, so this episode is with uh, Kyle Tierman. He's, uh, I hope I pronounced that right. Uh, he's the um, a professional surfer. Really cool guy. I was very happy to meet him. Uh, and you'll hear the the beginnings of our friendship here in this podcast. We spent the, the morning. Uh, he He offered me a surf lesson, and I don't really surf so it would have been wasted on me but neil strauss surfs and so i called neil and said hey i got this professional surfer in town and you know you want a lesson and neil was like yeah sure so went down and uh, i basically sat on a rock and watched those guys surf 
And then Kyle and I came back and hung out and uh, ended up spending the whole day together. And uh, then Kyle uh, told me, I don't know if he mentioned it in the podcast recording or or before or after or whatever, but he told me about this place in Costa Rica that he really likes. He's been to a couple times um, called Rhythmia, a pretty cool place from what Kyle said, an amazing place. Anyway, a week after I recorded this podcast, Kyle called me up and said, hey, I talked to the people at Rhythmia and they'd love to have you come down for an all expenses paid week in exchange for doing a podcast with uh, the director. So uh, there you go. Kyle and I are going to go down to Rhythmia in mid-June and I'm going to do a, a podcast down there. So, you know, they understand it's not an advertisement. I'm I'm free to say whatever I want to say, so I'll be honest about my experience there. But it's, I think, the only medically licensed uh, ayahuasca center in the world. So it's, uh, I'm looking forward to it. It sounds like they're doing some really interesting stuff and, um, yeah. So I'm really looking forward to that and Kyle hooked me up. So I'll keep you posted on that. What else is going on? Uh, I've been paying more attention to the, the Patreon thing. I think that's really the way to go. I'm, I'm a little, uh, trepidatious about the Amazon debacle that, uh, Sam Harris ran into and, I know Duncan's had some issues. Uh, If you haven't heard about this, I think I mentioned it on the last Roma, but um, basically the situation is that uh, there's some obscure provision in the fine print of the Amazon affiliate thing that the Amazon money cannot, uh, you can't say that it's for supporting a podcast or a show or anything like that. So if you use my Amazon affiliate uh, situation at my website where there's that Amazon thing, that money does not go to support this podcast. That money goes into a different place. um, And I use that money for uh, strictly uh, hookers and Coke and um, what else? Sex toys, uh, diesel for my van, uh, and saving up for cryogenic uh, preservation of my brain when I die. But it does not in any way support this podcast. I just want to be very clear about that. Um, but I'm sort of, you know, I, I whined a little bit uh, recently about how the listenership has gone up on, the, on this podcast, doubling basically in the last five or six months. Um, but the revenue coming through Patreon hasn't gone up. And that whining motivated a lot of you, 30, 40 new signups on Patreon. So I really appreciate that. And uh, and as a way to sort of cultivate this relationship, I'm doing things that are only for Patreon contributors. So, for example, yesterday I got this new camera called a Mevo which is sort of uh, designed for doing video uh, for live streaming and stuff. I don't do live streaming, but I used it to record uh, an AMA, which is kind of like a Roma where I just answer questions, but it's only people who are on the Patreon thing. Now, it doesn't matter if it's a dollar, 
you know, I've got a bunch of people who contribute a dollar a month. That's a quarter. That's 25 cents per podcast. That's like change you might not even bend over to pick up on the street per two-hour podcast. That seems like a pretty good deal. Um, so a bunch of people doing a dollar a month. Other, I think the highest is um, uh, Albert, I believe, who's uh, doing 250 a month. Shout out to Albert. My God, man. Um, yeah, so uh, the, the so I'm doing things that are only for podcast uh, Patreon contributors. So I did this AMA, a video, and the link is there for people on Patreon. So if you sign up for Patreon, you, you, know, you can see me answering questions. And I'm going to do more of those. Uh, the reason I got this camera is I'm going to put it on the dash of the van so I'll be recording stuff from the road and some of that content will be for, you know, Patreon only. Um, not to exclude any of the rest of you who may not have a credit card or whatever. It's, it's not like I'm telling any secrets or anything, but you know, got to have the bonus material for people who are supporting the podcast financially. Um, okay. What else do I have to tell you? Uh, I told you about Costa Rica. Oh, I just, this morning I had a really nice conversation with a woman named Alisa who is at a place in, uh, North Carolina. And I'm going to go out there in the van, uh, after talking to her for a while, I'm really excited about it. She and a small community of people have bought, um, some, a lot of land, a couple hundred acres, uh, and they are developing, they're, they're sort of developing a, a pocket of sanity where they're growing their own food, they're doing uh, permaculture, they're taking care of one another, their kids all hang out together, they're, they've got a sort of a hyper-local economy happening where they're, you know, bartering and exchanging things, and they're really trying to work out a healthy way to live in what is becoming an increasingly unhealthy world. And they do uh, woofing. They have four uh, woofers there now, which I can't remember what it stands for, but it's basically people who go and, you know, work on the farm in exchange for room and board. Uh, it's all organic. They've got animals and, and uh, it sounds like a lovely place. So I'm definitely heading there in the van once I get that project out on the road. Um, but if you're looking for some really good people and you're looking to sort of think about and experience a different way to approach life, I would encourage you to, um, check them out. They've, there's some stuff online about them. Google spark root farm, spark root farm, and you'll see them there. Uh, Elisa is the woman I spoke to. Um, but I'm sure whoever, you know, is at the con the other end of the contact button will help you out. Uh, they've got volunteers coming in. They need help clearing fields and, and, you know, building things and, you know, whatever. So if you've got any sort of practical skill or just happen to have some time and the right attitude, I'm sure they'd like to, to hear from you. Uh, and I'm going to do a podcast with them when I get out there and uh, really get into it. But it sounds like a great great situation. So that's about it. I'm just going to shut the hell up now and get into this uh, conversation with Kyle Tierman. There are a couple songs I'm going to play. Uh, I will play you out with uh, 
I think it's Down by the Waterside I Go, uh, Natty. Love that song. And then somewhere in here, I'm going to interrupt the conversation and play uh, Memories by Nomads. I think I've played it before, but uh, I like to just play stuff that I'm listening to a lot. I don't know why. You know, it's creativity, I guess. Speaking of creativity, I'm back into the book. I'm I'm actually working on that again. I'm back in the groove. And uh, yeah, I'm enjoying it. Uh I'm actually enjoying it, despite you know all my trepidation and everything. Um, I think it's going to be fun. I'm I'm looking forward to getting this thing published. I just hope the world doesn't end before I get around to it. So, strange days indeed. I hope you're doing okay wherever you are. Hey, shout out to Finland, by the way. I don't know why, but a lot of people in Finland listen to this podcast. I don't even know how many people there are in Finland, but it seems like a lot of them are listening to the podcast. I see a lot of emails. My mother tells me lots of t-shirts are going out to Finland. So if you're in Finland and you're listening to the podcast, thanks. Cool. I hope to get there. I've never been to Finland. Uh, hooked up with a Finnish woman once, long time ago. That's as close as I've ever gotten to Finland. Uh, but... Uh, I'd love to go there. I'd love to see the Northern Lights. I've never seen the Northern Lights. Um, yeah, Finland. The reason I never got there is Finland, Sweden. These uh, it, they're expensive, you know. And I've always been poor and or cheap. So, you know, eight, twelve, fifteen dollar beers can't do it. Can't do it. So, but you know, now maybe I don't know. Maybe I'll get it like a speaking invitation to Finland or something, and I'll go and give a talk in Helsinki. I've heard Helsinki is a cool place. Anyway, shout out to Finland. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Thanks for telling your friends. Thanks for your reviews on iTunes. I, I looked on iTunes the other day. I was looking for, um, I was actually I was looking for Kyle's podcast. He's had some really interesting guests. And as you'll hear, he's a super smart guy. So I would encourage you to check Check him out at the Kyle Tierman podcast. That's T-H-I-E-R-M-A-N-N, I believe. Um, anyway, I was looking for his podcast. Then I was there on the iTunes podcast page. And lo and behold, there was Tangentially Speaking listed under hot, hot. I guess it's a hot podcast, according to iTunes. So that's thanks to you. I'm sure that's there's some algorithm involving how many people are writing reviews and how many downloads and so on and so forth it was really cool because I, I took a screen grab actually because it was there with um duncan trussell so we're both hot i think it's because we both have phds that must be it thanks for listening and i will uh catch you soon hope everything's good in your world
Till the water rolling over the shore Every time I see her it's the same as before She said, hey, how you doing? City boy with your city ways Well, I had to come down and see you By the waterside, had to get away Down by the waterside I go I'll go and get my head right Every time I see her I can't say goodbye Just like the moon and the sun in the sky Together for such a short time Bring each other peace and love Then we say bye-bye Back to the city I go Back to the place I call home Jaja know the city life I suffocate mine like I and I So now and then I gotta ride out of town Go see her by the waterside Down by the waterside I go Get my head right Down by the waterside I go I go and get my head How do you pronounce your last name? Tierman. Tierman. Is that German? It is. Oh. Uh, and you are a professional surfer and a... Documentary filmmaker. Documentary I wear a lot of hats. Yeah. Do a podcast. Curious guy. <laughs> curious in what sense of the word? Strange? Strange. Curious. Strange curious. I'm curious about all kinds of things. We were just talking about Topanga Canyon. Yeah, we're and in your ancestral home here. I know. Yeah, I feel really it. Cool. I feel the energy yeah. of the ancestors. Yeah. But you know, Topanga Canyon, um, the reason there's a surf spot called Topanga that's really good is because over years and years and years, the watershed from Topanga has um, brought sediment out mm. into the surf spot, which has created a wave. And yeah. a lot of the best waves in the world are actually formed because of the watersheds um, up the way. It's a really good, good way to um, 
find new surf spots is to look for um, where a wave might be at the base of a watershed. Hmm. Um, even a lot of the best uh, coral waves around the world, pipeline, there's a really famous wave called Chopu. And the reason that wave is so good is because there's a freshwater river that create a cut in the reef because freshwater will kill coral. Oh. And that's the reason the wave is so good. So I think that I've, I've always been curious about the world um, and you know, following um, the ocean upstream has led me to some really interesting places. Right. Yeah. It's interesting how, you know, you and, and Neil Strauss were talking earlier about uh, the seabed and how the seabed affects the, the waves and all that. And, you know, people think about surfing, it's just like, oh, there's a wave, ride it, you know, but there's so much more going on. I, mean, I told you I did one lesson in Nicaragua, right? And even in that, it was so interesting. The guy was telling me, was it the waves come in sets of seven? Is that right? Or no, not it? always. Is it odd numbers all the way? I, don't <laughs> no, I haven't like. heard. I, I think that's more superstitious than anything. No. Really? <laughs> no, but there is a lot that's hidden in plain sight yeah. uh, when it comes to um, a sport like surfing where you're, where you're interacting with the natural world. Right. When you see a wave that breaks on the shore, that wave came from thousands of miles away. That actual individual wave not the energy that dissipates and regathers and dis so because like i remember reading somewhere that a, a tsunami when it's going across the ocean is nothing it's imperceptible it's like a little you know it's an inch high or something and it isn't until it comes where the the sea floor is coming up that it actually becomes you know it rises up from the sea sure so the way it works is um a wave is swell energy right right a wave is just the um it's it's the point at which swell energy has hit an obstruction on the bottom of the ocean right to cause it to turn into a wave because the wave is like a circle Right, it's it's uh, like a sort of like a whirlpool turned sideways. You can think about it at, like let's let's take it all the way back to the inception of a storm, right? So a lot of the storms and uh, that generate big waves off the coast of California in our winter time uh, are first created from the Aleutian Islands, right? It's created mm. from this temperature gradient that's happening way way up off the Kamchatka Peninsula and in the Aleutian Islands. And um, it's warm air and cold air right. going like this. And because the earth is... A rubbing sign with the, I'm Yeah, sorry. I hate, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm wildly gesticulating with my hands right you now. It's a video. Yeah, exactly. But uh, because the earth is spinning, the Coriolis effect turns that temperature gradient into a, a spiral, which right. is why when we're looking at storms, they're spiraling. So a storm comes from... Um, wind for a long period of time. And if you, get if you get strong wind that has been sustained for a certain period of time, that's how you get a storm, right? right? And then the storms start moving and those, those swells, that creates swells, it creates wave energy. What, what gets really interesting is when we, when we start learning about constructive interference and destructive interference. So let's say that you're screaming across the room mm -hmm. and then I start screaming across the room in the same way. That, that means that uh, our, our, we, ugh, our voices are going to pick up amplification, right? And it's going to be louder. If you have a 
ton of people screaming in the same direction, that's gonna create more power. So if there's a, a northwest swell and then a west swell that hits it at the same time, that could create something completely new. And then depending on where those waves hit, what, what the bathymetry is, the bottom contours in the ocean, that's gonna de determine what the shape of the wave's gonna be. And does the temperature of the water also affect how the wave organizes? I don't know. So like I'm wondering if like surfing in cold areas like off the coast of Scotland or Ireland yeah. is different if the calculations are different than tropical waters. I don't know if temperature in water affects the way that energy moves through water. Mm. Uh, but I know that there are big waves in both colds areas and yeah. warm areas. It's trippy, man. What it's are the waves like it's in super Antarctica? fun. That must be wild. It must, be, it must be super wild. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I've never been to Antarctica. Yeah, me either. I'd like to go. Yeah, me too. Yeah. End of the world. Hey, come on. Patagonia can hook you up. Right? I know. <laughs> well, I do get to go to some very fun... I do get to go to some very fun places yeah. um, on the surf trips that we get to go on. And um, I kind of moonlight between doing documentary film and surfing. So on a lot of these trips that I have an opportunity to go on, um, that's where I'll get ideas for stories that I do about environmental and social issues. Right. Yeah. So uh, the backstory to this is that you reached out to me. I get emails. I get a lot of emails from people saying, hey, you know, uh, I think uh, I've got some interesting <sighs> stuff. It'd be cool for your podcast. And they like delete. You know, generally it's like delete. Uh, they don't even get to me. My assistant just like just screens them out. Um, you know, it, you know what it's like. It's like people who are asking for attention generally. Yeah. There's a reason you don't, you don't really want to deal with them. Um, uh, but in your case, I looked at some of your stuff and it's like, wait a minute, you're doing really interesting things. You're a legit guy here. You're not just some like surfer dude who wants to, you know, impress his girlfriend with being on somebody's podcast. Had have to be a pretty easily impressed girlfriend. Um, I loved your email response. Oh, did I want to You say? said, uh. Normally, when I have people recommending that they to be on my podcast, I assume they're self-indulgent dipshits, <laughs> and I immediately delete them. Yeah. In your case, I'm happy I watched some of your stuff. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. No, your stuff is really interesting because you're obviously using the surf thing as a vehicle to do things that are more. I don't know if important is it's, the word, but they're they're. Well, it's a lens. That, it's a lens that I look at the world through. Right. 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 I've so it's like loved the ocean from the food thing, but it's not really about food. Right. And your thing's not really about surfing, from what I can see. It's about it's a it's, yeah. It's not a way really. To get into other things. Yeah. So not really. Universal. Yeah, and it's man. One of the great joys in my life has been to be able to move laterally from issue to issue, right. and have this lens that I can cover all these stories um, from the uh, Indonesia trash epidemic to the GMO um, testing in Hawaii to the impact wild pig are having on coral reefs in Hawaii. Um, really, everything. It, it's it's so fun to be able to get these micro degrees. Yeah. in these issues yeah. and then move from from one to the next to the next um it's and just did, it's so did fun this all man. come about it's, did you grow up in santa cruz grew up in santa cruz your dad grew up in topanga that's we yeah. mentioned earlier this is the ancestral home but then he moved up into santa cruz when you were born uh before i was born before you were yeah born. my mom and my dad met in santa cruz and i'm the youngest of five all my mm -hmm. older brothers and sisters surf 
Really? Yeah. Have you seen a film called Surfwise? I haven't. Wow. It's a very interesting film. Uh, it's about a guy who uh, was in the military. I think he was a doctor and he was stationed in Hawaii. He surfed and this is like the 50s. And something went wrong career-wise. I don't remember what. He was expecting a promotion or whatever. And something went wrong. And he quit his job and he went to Israel. And he took a surfboard because he had this dream that he wanted to do like uh, 80 days and 80 nights. Or I don't remember what it is from the Bible in the desert. And he went to Israel. And uh, he had a surfboard. And nobody had ever surfed in Israel before. So he was out there surfing on the med, which isn't great, but there's something, I guess. And uh, people were like, oh, check it out. And so he was in the newspaper and all this stuff. And he was like the godfather, you know, the originator of Israeli surf culture. And then he went and did his, his fasting in the desert. And when he was out there, he had a vision that he was going to meet this Latina woman. And they were going to have, I think, eight or nine kids or something, right? So he left Israel, came back to the U.S. He was in California somewhere in a Mexican restaurant he sees this table full of Mexican people and there's a woman there and that's her and he walks over to her and he says you and I are going to marry and you're going to have nine children that's quite a pickup line <laughs> all or nothing you know and and they did Neil Strauss just does magic tricks to yeah. girls <laughs> exactly wear a funny hat yeah you know? <laughs> that's confidence <laughs> Exactly. Chris, you're going to be my future husband. Yeah, yeah. Well, these are not only are we going to have nine kids, but but (laughs) these are going to be their names as well. Yeah, exactly. And they're all going to be black. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Um, Anyway, anyway. So, so he does this. I think I'm. I mentioned earlier. I'm. I'm so bad at this microphone thing. I think I'm peeking out of my own. Um, He. so they have these kids and they they raise these kids in a fucking 22-foot camper. And this guy's philosophy is everything you need to learn about life, you learn surfing. And so he doesn't even send the kids to school. They live in this camper. They just go up and down the West Coast and he raises the kids. And, and they became sort of a famous surfer family. Like a couple of kids own a surf school in San Diego you probably heard of them. I talked to my cousin about it. He had heard of them. I think that you can learn anything you want in life through something that you're passionate about. Yeah. I do have a problem with the uh, importance a lot of parents put on their kids surfing. Mm. And they expect them to be the next world champion. And they'll yeah. dr- pull them out of school. And I think that it does take an element of drive and passion to really... Um, be able to learn all the skills that you need to through something that you're interested in. Well, and you can't. I mean, you're not going to learn accounting by surfing. No. You're not going to learn, you know, money management or... But, I, I mean, I mean I'll, I'll, say, I'll say this. So, you asked me how I got into this. So, when I was graduating high school, I had a fantastic teacher and I became very interested in the impact that where we put our money in different banks has on... Uh, larger environmental issues. Um, I'm very Mm. interested in leveraged environmental impact. Mm. I don't think that every decision we make is equal. Um, And banking is really unique because when you put your money in a bank, it doesn't stay there. 
right. banks use your money to lend out to either uh, fund a coal power plant or uh, give a loan to the bakery down the street, right? And not only that, there's a, a uh, law called fractional reserve lending, which allows banks to lend out your money at a very largely uh, multiplied amount than what you have on deposit. Um, so that was really fascinating to me, just in the sense of leveraged impact. And I decided to do a, a story on a proposed coal power plant down in Chile and on a beach, right? Because I was really interested in going down to Chile and surfing these waves. Mm. And I ended up doing a story about that through the lens of surfing. So I had to learn about um, accounting, how to write a grant, how to pitch a project. Yeah, okay. The whole so system of that came through a lens of surfing that I was interested in. So what did the teacher do? How did he facilitate this? Uh, it was a she, and she very much... Um, more than anything encouraged me to keep going with that yeah. curiosity. Yeah, One of the big yeah. issues that I have with um, conventional public schooling is that you're forced to gather up all this information as quickly as possible, regurgitate it onto a test, and then forget it all, yeah. rather than a natural pursuit. Right. Um, which was really nice to have. And that, I think, set me on that story that I did down there. I, I um, raised $7,000 to go down to Chile and, and do this story on this proposed coal plant on this beach in this fishing town. None of the fishermen wanted it in there. Got some interviews, um, did some research and found out that Bank of America was underwriting the project and that they're one of the largest funders of coal power worldwide. Mm. Um, so if you have your money in B of A, there's a good chance that it's going towards um, projects that you might not want to support. So I came out with that story when I was 18. It's this small YouTube video, um, very poorly produced. Um, but it was right around 2008 when the um, collapse happened. So people, for the first time in a long time, started paying attention to the banking system. Right. And it got a ton of traction, and people started moving their money in we documented a bunch of money being moved out of B of A and into local banks around the world. Um, but I think that it, it was, that was an opportunity for me to kind of go into something that I was interested in and um, learn about a larger subject, which is kind of my whole business model really is mm. to use the lens of the ocean to cover larger environmental and social issues. Yeah. And that was, that was kind of the, op like the first moment that I, I guess, believed in myself that I could do that. It was a big time at 18 years old when you're deciding to go to a public college or do your own thing. And there was, I think, pressure from um, people to do the four-year college. Like my right. brother went to UC San Diego and said, hey, if you go, I'll give you the the key to Black's Beach, which is this really well-known spot. And he was the, the captain of the surf club. And mm. uh, they're all very supportive of what I decided to do. But um, I think that that was like one of the biggest plunges mm. in my life to, to pursue um, this kind of storytelling. You know, at that age, I mean, that's a great, you said it was the first time you believed in yourself that you could do something like that. Well, fuck, man, most people wait till they're 40 to get a break. You yeah. know what I mean? And that's great that you went for it and like you took a shot and it sounds like you uh, timing was right. And 
like, yeah, it wasn't as well produced as what you're doing now, but it was well enough that it got that attention. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I think that um, a lot of times I've just felt so uncomfortable doing uh, things that I'm not passionate about. It, like, yeah. like, the, like I have this very deep seething like discomfort when when my life starts going into um a direction that um feels like it's not right and um i'm very happy for that yeah yeah it's a fucking stomach ache that when all of a sudden you're going down a road and you're not questioning the premise of why you're on that road and you keep driving you keep driving and people are telling you that you should go keep going with it I've always had a very tough time with that. Mm. Um, and there have been a few moments in my life where I've had to kind of redirect, but um, thankfully I did have an early success in that um, because we got a ton of publicity around that story that I did and uh, was able to kind of move forward and, and uh, continue doing story, different types of stories. I will say though that I do think that early success can be very damaging yeah. and it, and it was for me because that story of a kid is taking on the banking system um it was just a good story you know it was it had it was there was good timing around it yeah and i tried to recreate that a number of times doing other stories um i went to sri lanka and did a story on um the uh working conditions there and how they had improved a lot over the the past few years due to consumer pressure. Um, I did a story on plastic pollution. And I think that there was a a point in my life when I was really kind of chasing that initial success that I had and not really doing it for the right reasons. Mm. Um, Trying to... it's like that feeling of um, not being fundamentally okay with yourself until you attain a certain level of success. Mm. And that's something that I've really been wrestling with from when I was 18 and I did that story to now. And I feel like I'm finally trying to get a handle on it. I'm 27 now and realizing that, hey man, if you're not fundamentally okay with yourself right now, it's probably never gonna happen. And no success or accolades are going to fix that. I did ayahuasca recently and it kind of like blew my door, my mind open on that whole concept. Really? So, well, yeah. you're talking to a guy who's written one book that was a surprise international bestseller and, and I've been delayed writing the second one for several years and part of the reason is that, to be honest, you know? It's not, it's not that I'm afraid of failure, it's that I'm afraid of uh caring about success what do you mean by that i mean like you know the and i'm sure this you i think there are parallels in your story and mine which is the only reason i mention it but it's like when you do something that's successful and you get a lot of attention it creates a certain kind of life there are all these opportunities suddenly that weren't there before And so you can sort of keep, you can try to keep that uh, momentum, right? By writing another book or chasing another story or, you know, continuing this, you know, 
David versus Goliath motif that you were caught up in there for a while or whatever it is. Or in my case, I could write another book about sex and become the Kinsey of, you know, try to become Kinsey of this generation or something. And I've, like you, I've always been very wary of going down a road that I didn't really understand where I was going and wasn't sure that this is where I wanted to be and all that. And I think that kind of externally defined success is very seductive in ways that money never was for me and, and, you know, power, these things. And so I'm very wary of it. And I sort of, I, I, I'm very slow instead of just capitalizing on it and, and, you know, reinvest it. And I I just sort of like, "Eh, I think I'm just going to like chill and ride this wave and, you know, enjoy these opportunities and, and pay attention to this wild ride that I'm on rather than becoming too focused on trying to keep the ride going. Right. Because no ride will last. What do you like about the success that you attained from Sex at Dawn? What do I like about yeah, it? Yeah, what, what are aspects that feel true about the, the joy that you've well, had as a result of that? One book? of the main ones would be this podcast, honestly, that it gave me the opportunity to sit down with someone that I find interesting and have these conversations and have 100,000 people listen and send me money so I'll keep doing it. And like, oh, fuck, that's great. Because I enjoy this. What we're doing right now, man, I could do this twice a day, every day, and I'd be happy as shit. Uh, writing, I don't enjoy. And that's another reason it's taken me a long time to like get get this next book done because it's like... Uh, you know, my message, the, you know, the message I send to people is do something you, that, that you enjoy. And when I say enjoy, I don't mean on that shallow level. I mean that, that fills something your soul, that truly that feeds your soul. Yeah. You. yeah. Yeah. And writing does, but with writing, it's very indirect for me. You know, it's like you write a book and then, you know, two, three, four years later, people are saying, oh, my God, that book changed my life. It's so if you're lucky, if anyone reads it. Right. And there's no guarantee anyone will. But, you know, and with Sex at Dawn, there's been this beautiful feedback from people that it's really helped them and, and you know, taken away shame and fear and guilt and all this stuff. Uh, but it's years after I wrote it. So. It's not like being a musician where you're playing on stage and people are dancing right in front of you the second you hit the notes, you know? Man, I was thinking about that so recently. It's ringing true to me because the work that I do also is um, very much where I'll go out and I'll chase a story, right? But then when it's finally released, I'm on to the next thing. So it doesn't feel present for me in my mind. And when people talk about my work being altruistic or like, oh, you're doing good work for the world... I, I really don't feel that, and I don't necessarily do the stories to change the world. I'm chasing a story because I think it's interesting as shit, and I want to tell more people about it. And right. then, hey, if that changes someone's behavior, uh, that's great. But it's not the same feeling as going down and feeding a homeless person. Mm. I had a... Um, for my birthday every year, um, I go down uh, and we'll bring soup to I, I, my birthday's in January. So in Santa Cruz, it's usually really cold and rainy and my friends and I will go down and we'll give soup to some of the homeless people. We have a big homeless issue in Santa Cruz and dude, the feeling of 
sitting down and having a conversation with someone. This last time I had a conversation with a woman who had been homeless for the last 10 years, but uh, one of her kids was in college actually and at a successful university. And the other one was, uh, she said, addicted to drugs and she hadn't seen her in a number of years. Uh, man, the, the feeling of just connecting with someone on that level and listening to them and saying, hey, I'm sorry that you're having a, a tough time and uh, you know, here's some soup is a feeling that I've never gotten from doing documentary. Yeah. Um, but I think that it's important nonetheless. It's just um, there's a delay on it. Right? In the same way that you're talking about, you write a book that really changes people's lives, but it's not present in your mind anymore. Yeah. I think, and yeah. I think that there's, it's, it's okay both ways, yeah. right? No, there's, there's a necessity for both things. Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, it's as ridiculous as it sounds at my age, it's, it's definitely uh, the writing is about growing up. And yeah. The podcasting is about having a good time. And, yeah, and they both. It's beautiful that people are receptive to both of them, but I think for me, I, I need to put more energy into growing up now in my fifties. One of the, the <laughs> <laughs> I know that sounds ridiculous, but it's true. One of the uh, the best things that I really enjoy on that soul feeding level about the documentary work that I do is when. I realize that I'm very wrong about something in the field from talking to people. Mm, so you're learning. Yeah, yeah. a lot of times uh, I'll go in with an idea of a story. Uh, for example, I was this last year I did a story on the, uh, the everyday heroes who acted during the BP oil spill. And I got to go down to Louisiana and we, we interviewed shrimp fishermen. And there's this place down in southern Louisiana called Grand Isle. Mm. And Grand Isle is where a lot of the, the shrimp fishermen um, go to dock. And it's right next to one of the largest oil ports in the United States. Um, the U.S. gets about a third of our oil from Louisiana. And the vast majority of that comes through this port called Port Fouchon. So it's this massive, larger-than-life uh, port. And I was interviewing one of the guys, and obviously me coming from California, I have my preconceived notions about offshore oil drilling. And uh, the shrimp fisherman I was talking to was saying that how this is one of the worst years yet for shrimp fishing. And, and I looked at him and I said, man, like, it must just be salt in an open wound to have this um, huge oil port right next to you as you're out trying to get um, your, your fish or your shrimp, clearly looking for the sound bite of like, yes, it's horrible, right? And he looked at me, he said, you know, man, uh, I'm a fourth generation oil driller. And Kyle, when I'm not here shrimping, I'm out there on the oil rigs. And this is a way more complex subject than you know. And my anger is directed at BP. My anger is directed at the shortcuts that they took that allowed the Deepwater Horizon disaster to happen and the lies that they told during the cleanup. But the oil industry as a whole is much more complicated um, than you might think. And I remember looking at him thinking, damn, 
I never could have known that just reading the article about how horrible the lasting effects of the BP oil spill are. And I, I love that so much. Mm. Having the chance to go into these situations and, and just listen to people, man. Yeah. It's very fun. Yeah, it's hard when people's livelihood depends upon something that's destroying the environment, which, you know, pretty much. Or when it's multi-generational, when it's a multi-generational yeah. issue, things get but very complex. Thing. It's like, okay, great. Your family's been, you know, mining coal for four generations. It's still a shit job. It's still fucking up the earth, right? Like, we, we become so wedded to what's familiar, you know, that, that it, it sort of feels right it feels justified no matter what it is and like i know it's really hard for people to step back from that and i often refer to this this phrase from joseph campbell detribalization right to get outside your tribal viewpoints and ways of seeing the world but it's i, I got an email recently from a guy because I, I wrote something about the 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 pipeline the what what's it called the Standing Rock. Yeah, Standing you know, Rock. Keystone Pipeline. Yeah. And this guy's like, hey, man, I'm from Alberta. The situation's more complicated than that. So I wrote back and said, well, how is it more complicated? And he, you know, it's like this, this stuff is horrible environmentally. It's horrible for Alberta. It's horrible for, it's horrible for that. And his response was, well, you know, the U.S. is going to use oil. You want to get it from Saudi Arabia or you want to get it from Canada? And I was like, well, it, wait a minute. Whether you get it separate from that issue, it is environmentally much worse, this tar sands oil, than the oil coming out of Saudi Arabia or Venezuela. It's much more destructive of the environment. To pull it out, process it, and burn it off and all that is much, the effects are much. And he's like, yeah, that's true, but my family works in that. It's like, oh, okay, now we're talking about your family. That's a different issue. I agree. I had a, a guy on my podcast who was a medic at Standing Rock, and he went in there for a week when it was 20 below, and he was mm -hmm. making sure that people wouldn't freeze to death. And he was talking a lot about how um, initially the pipeline was going to go through, um, what was it called, Brexit? Brexit was it's the town just up from where they're planning on putting the pipeline, and it's a uh, little richer and a little yeah, whiter neighborhood. Yeah. Um, and he was telling me how, he's like, you know, corporations will look you straight in the face and say, what we're doing isn't wrong. Right? What? No, it's, it is more complex. It's, there's nothing wrong. And he said, you know, I still have a ton to learn about this issue, but I can see that this is fucking wrong. Yeah. And I don't need to know everything about the issue to go there and give blankets to these people and help them through this cold winter. Yeah. So I do agree with you on that point. I think that a lot of times um, we make it seem more complicated than it is. Right. But in yeah. other, other ways, for example, um, hunting, this is a world that I've um, just recently become more educated on after a story I did on the impact the wild pig are having on coral, that's a much more complicated issue than most people think. And when, when you post the photo of a dead animal on Instagram, the uh, throngs of vitriol and hate will, will come. Don't yeah. you worry. Don't yeah. you worry. I did that recently. Yeah. And that is a, as a result of people not being educated and oversimplifying an issue. Well, and again, also with, with being wedded to the familiar. Right, They're, they don't hunt these people who are freaking out about you know dead animal. You're cruel. You're horrible. 
if they had grown up hunting, then they wouldn't see it that way, right? It's like what you, th your sense of what is right is just what you're familiar with. Right. It's, it's really crazy. You're familiar with Joe Rogan, right? Yeah. Yeah, and his whole hunting thing. He's been dealing with that vitriol for the last couple of years. He's done a lot for that world. Um, yeah. I became exposed to this through uh, an interesting lens, which was the ocean. Um, I grew up surfing and skateboarding. I didn't grow up hunting and fishing. Uh, and I 
was in Hawaii last year, and I was having a beer uh, on Oahu at a place called Louis Bueno's Me- Mexican Restaurant. Louis Bueno. Louis Bueno's, <laughs> with a friend of mine who is an oceanographer. Yeah. And he came in after a long day of work, and he said, you know, Kyle, there's all this shit that's killing coral reefs. Um, but one that's a really major one that most people don't know about is the impact that wild pig are having on coral. I looked at him and I was like, what are you, what are you talking about? How are wild pig impacting coral? And he's like, all right, so check it out. You're imagining pigs swimming. Right. <laughs> yeah. But uh, what happens is that in Hawaii, there is a major pig problem. Um, pig were originally brought over with the the Polynesians when they first came. Mm. And then those pig, um, they were a much smaller animal. They bred with the uh, domestic European pig that Captain Cook brought over. Mm -hmm. And now what you have is this issue where the huge wild boar and sows all over um, the Hawaiian Islands and pig breed at an incredible rate. Um, Pigs are sexually mature at under one year old. Um, They can have two and a half breeding cycles a year, and they can have about six to 10 babies every time they breed. So yeah. you can do the math. They explode in population. They have no natural predators in Hawaii. And it's a really big issue because they're basically rototillers with hooves, and um, they'll destroy uh, landscapes. Now, coral is actually a living animal. Um, and it needs direct sunlight to grow. Um, there's a living organism inside coral called zooxanthellae, and it thrives in conditions uh, that are called oligotrophic, that are low in sediment and low in nutrients. Um, and they're constantly in this balance, this symbiotic relationship with um, the fish that they house. Coral makes up less than I believe it's less than one-tenth of one percent of the ocean floor, but they um, it, they support one in four marine organisms. Mm. So they're, crazy. they're crazy. They yeah. are very important. Live coral is very important yeah. for habitat. And uh, what happens is that when a, a number of conditions come into play that kills the coral, over time they break down and then the fish lose their habitat and there's a number of, of other um, bad impacts as a result. But um, one of the things that happens with pig is that um, they will go into these watersheds and they will dig up the, the um, soil so that then when it rains, there's no soil retention. Yeah. And then it will create these huge mud plumes that go out over the coral and they suffocate it. And it's kind of like putting a, a blanket over a plant. Um, and it doesn't allow the zooxanthellae to photosynthesize. That, now, it's, it's, it would be hyperbolic to say that pigs and um, goats, which are another big issue in Hawaii, um, are the only cause of coral bleaching. There are a number of factors, sure. um, the warming of the oceans, right. um, fertilizer and excess nutrients. Yeah. But it's kind of like going into a party and... If you are a little sick and you're kind of fighting a cold and then you start drinking, chances are you're going to end up with the flu. As opposed to if you have a healthy immune system, you're probably going to make it through. So the impacts that that we are having on land um, have a really 
big, um, th they can really determine whether coral can make it through tough seasons. Yeah. Um, but through that, I, I learned all about pig and I learned all about hunting and that it's actually really important for um, hunters to exist, um, not only in Hawaii, but around the world. But that was kind of a mind blower for me because before I was, um, I wouldn't say that I was the guy writing in all caps around Cecil the Lion issues, but um, I just wasn't educated about it. Well, we don't need to be shooting lions. No, we don't. Because that's it, that's a completely different yeah, issue. We don't need to be shooting predators. That you know, we need to be culling the the rapid breeders like the deer and the pigs, and because we've wiped out the predators, and that's why it's an issue. Everything's out of, in you know out of balance. Uh, like rabbits in Australia or kangaroos in Australia. Yeah. yeah. Well, every species has a caring capacity. Yeah. And one thing I love is talking to ecologists and oceanographers who have a very sober outlook on what um, each species' caring capacity is, and they're looking at at everything as an ecosystem. And they're what not. Do, what they're do not they tell you about our species. About our species, yeah. We're way over our caring <laughs> capacity. Yeah. yeah, but but we're we are different in a fundamental level, I believe. Um, I mean, we're, I see you smiling because I know that you're going to just give me a big left-right <laughs> well, intellectual uppercut. But uh, I agree with you in terms of that like, we're, we like to breed, we like to shit and eat. Uh -huh. um, very simple things um, keep us happy. But we also are farmers we are we have we've removed ourselves from that that food chain um, in a very fundamental way and I do think that it's important for humans to look at these ecosystems from a sober uh, place and not just say like hey well whatever happens happens um, we should just step back and let nature take its tr course because oh, we've already yeah. impacted nature well, so much it, so yeah. that is so that's the, the way that i was coming from yeah no, i agree with you although yeah i mean it's it's phraseology because the idea that we're separate from nature is problematic right because yes. that's what got us into this mess in the first place but i certainly agree with you that the the environments we've impacted which are all of them are so imbalanced now that there is it's impossible to step back and let nature take its course it's we have to eliminate ourselves or at least get our population down to five million hunter gatherers or something yeah, yeah. nature uh and and reconnecting with nature seems to be a big theme for you has that always been something that's been a big part of your life yeah yeah uh, when I was a kid growing up in western Pennsylvania, <clears throat> from about uh, 8 to 14 or so, I passionately believed that I was a Native American born into the wrong body in the wrong moment historically. Like I was, there's something went wrong in... Some wires got crossed, and I was born into this white family. You're supposed in the to go left, century. left, then right. You went left, exactly. right, then right. <laughs> it's like, what am I doing here? Um, and I don't mean to, to trivialize anyone's experience, but it, it, you know, when I later in life, when I met uh, uh, people who are transgender, it's like I, that's I kind of felt that way. It's like I'm in the wrong body. I'm in the wrong place. This isn't me. You know. Um, so yeah, I spent a lot of time in nature. I made you know wigwams and 
just uh, gone out as much as possible. Of course, it was Western Pennsylvania in the 1970s, so it wasn't pristine nature. It was, you know, there was industry and all sorts of crazy shit happening. But I grew up in an area with a lot of uh, deer hunting and, you know, my best buddy who was half uh, American Indian, he was half Apache, half Italian. He was a character. Jeez. Man, his father was a one-eyed jet pilot who I think was probably in the mafia. Now that I look back on it with adult perspective. Well, with a preamble, like a one-eyed jet pilot, he's got to have an interesting story. Yeah, yeah. How do you get a jet pilot's license with no depth perception? <laughs> you know, you're paying somebody off, I think. But anyway... Well, uh, was there a moment for you that really clicked? Uh, I think that a lot of times, intrinsically, we know that nature is important. Yeah, I feel really good when I go out on a, on a hike and breathe in the fresh air, but... I, I worry that for a lot of people, they, they lose that part of themselves because they haven't defined what aspect of it they really like. And that, I was kind of going back to my question around like, what aspects of success do you enjoy mm. and what aspects do you not enjoy? I think that we can kind of throw out the baby with the bathwater and be like, oh, I think like, yeah. success is external success is stupid. I don't want any of that. Or nature hates me and scares me. Or I love nature. And I, but, oh, well, nature will fucking kill you real quickly if you're not careful. And yeah. I think that it's important to kind of, um, just recognize what aspects of it are really important for us. Yeah. I, I think for me, uh, there's a sense of resonance in... I mean, I, I don't know how to describe it, but growing up, I always felt like American culture just didn't make sense to me. It was like, okay, I'm here. I understand. I'm American. I'm supposed to, you know, get into this shit, but I don't. I, it, I don't like it. I don't agree with it. This whole, you know, work ethic and everyone's out there trimming their lawns and washing their cars and the whole, all the... It's just... just was clearly bullshit to me from a very early age. But then when I would go out in the woods, things looked the way they were supposed to look. And they smelled the way they're supposed to smell. And they moved at the pace that they, I could just feel like this, this works. This makes sense. I get this. The rest of it, no, nah, I don't get it. And, um, you know, and then later when I, I took hallucinogens for the first time, I got that same feeling like, Wow, you know, everything is so beautiful, but it's beautiful because this is this is the world my eyes evolved looking at, you know? So, of course it's beautiful. The, like there's a there's an interconnection between this organism that I am and the environment in which it was designed, you know? Where did you have your first psychedelic experience? Uh upstate New York, Halloween night 1980. What yeah. was that like? Uh, mushrooms. It was my freshman year in college. It was great. It was it was great. But, but you got all of those insights on that first journey. Oh, not necessarily that first journey. I mean, that first that first trip. I I spent a lot of time in a in a uh, cemetery. I remember Ooh, that yikes. was interesting. That's bold. 
<laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, but it was good. It was it was a very interesting night. I remember. Hey, it's well. it's not as bold as having your first psychedelic experience at an EDM concert or something like that. Like, oh, I hate psychedelics. Like, maybe you just hate this music. Yeah, yeah, I don't get that. I, I've never. I mean, to me, taking psychedelics and going to an artificial environment is the exact wrong thing to do. You know, uh, people go to bars, concerts. Yeah, no, I take psychedelics. I want to be in a desert, on a shoreline, away from people that I don't know, that I don't want to deal with drunks or, you know, potentially aggressive you know, I just want to be either alone or with a couple of friends and in nature. That's have, it. Have you ever uh, read a book called The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide? Mm, I don't it's think by so. a guy named Dr. Jim Fadiman. And I recently found out that he lives about five streets down from me in Santa Cruz. And I, mm. I had him on my podcast, but he had some great insight into how a lot of those early psychonauts, um, Terrence McKenna and Aldous Huxley, and he grew up with all of those guys. Um, they just thought it was insane to take psychedelics and have all of these external inputs coming in. And they would go out solo or they would go out with one person. And I think that psychedelics are tools and we can use them however we want. But the people who I've seen who've had lasting benefits from them have taken it more seriously and always have taken them in nature. Yeah, yeah. Uh... Also, uh, John Lilly, he probably hung out with John Lilly a bit. I mean, he was sort of invented the sensory deprivation tank to yeah. eliminate even natural, gentle stim- stimulus. Yeah. Yeah. Have, so you mentioned you did an ayahuasca thing recently. Was that your first time? It was. I was hired as a cameraman to go down to a place called Rhythmia, which is in Costa Rica. It's the first medically licensed ayahuasca treatment center in the world. Um, the head doctor there used to be um, the administrative director at Passages in Malibu. You, you had him on your podcast. Recently. I had him on my podcast. What's the name yeah. of your podcast? Buddy? The Kyle Tierman Show. Super original. Yeah, easy to remember. So yeah. <laughs> uh, holla plug. Uh, anyway, he um, was telling me that uh, when he was at Passages, the nationwide statistic for addicts who will go to rehab and then will be sober one year after is between 12 and 15 percent and he told me that it was really frustrating going to work every day Mm. knowing that stat yeah Uh, and that you know as a um a psychologist you usually know what the issue is with your client within two to three sessions but then it can take 10 years for them to really deal with it themselves um so he was exposed to psychedelics from a guy um a guy named uh jerry powell and jerry powell at one time owned the largest plastic surgery company in the world and had a he made something like 94 million dollars doing it and his his life was a complete wreck he was addicted to demerol he was he was an alcoholic wild lifestyle and he came into passages and that's how dr jeff met him now, somewhere along the way, Jerry went down to Costa Rica and had an aboga um, experience. Aboga is a psychedelic that is really effective at getting people off of 
other drugs. It sounds like a horrible experience. Apparently it's a three-day trip and you see every bad thing you've ever done in your life in an IMAX movie screen before you and at the end of the trip you really get the sense that you don't want to keep being that person. But he saw this and he saw the shift that happened with Jerry. And then he started um, exploring ayahuasca, um, which is very helpful at, at getting people through trauma. Um, what actually happens when you have an ayahuasca journey is um, your amygdala, which stores emotional memories. Um, so for example, he gave a good example. Let's say when you were five, you got bit by a dog. and now you have a phobia of dogs. You don't want to be afraid of dogs. You want to love dogs. But every time you see a dog, you have an anxiety attack. That's because there's been a neural pathway that's been burned into your amygdala and you can't shift it. And what ayahuasca allows you to do is go back to those places of trauma and reshape neural pathways. And it's a huge deal for a lot of people. And it's very effective at getting people through trauma when done correctly. I say when done correctly because I, I've also met people who have done, uh, claim to have done ayahuasca a lot and don't seem like they've really changed. Um, but I had the opportunity to go down to Costa Rica, um, hired as a cameraman, to this place called Rhythmia, and it's not just ayahuasca, they do um, yoga and massage and breath work. And after the filming trip was done, I extended my ticket a few days and had participated in my first ayahuasca ceremony. Um, man, it's a mind blower. I've experimented with, I, I had experimented with other psychedelics before that, but um, it's a very dark and introspective medicine. And, and um, you know, for example, I would ask myself a question and then I would write it down in my journal as I was on the trip and then my hand would start writing the answer. Um, and going back to what we were talking about earlier and of, about feeling enough and kind of chasing these external successes to try and get to a place of okayness with ourselves is, is something that I've dealt with for my whole life. And I, I have worked on it through meditation and through listening to wise older fellows like yourself who have gone through enough iterations of it to be able to laugh at it and not take yourself so seriously. But the experience of having a conversation with myself on that deep level of introspection was something that was new for me. And it has stuck with me. Um, and I'll give you an example of how it stuck with me because it, it, that doesn't mean that I've been in this constant state of love and light and, uh, you know, having a, a trail of flower petals everywhere I go. But, um, I recently was, was hired, um, to give a, a speech out in a place called Oshkosh, Wisconsin for Earth Day. And, um, the speech was on effective techniques for environmental storytelling and I was really excited about it. I love public speaking. And I went out there and they, they paid me a ton of money to do it. And I just ate shit. And I, I did a, a very poor job. And they knew that I did a poor job. And Who hired you? Uh, the school. The school hired me. And the, they, I have a speaking agent who gets me the gigs. Mm. But... Um, 
it, it wasn't good. In what sense? I, it was a new speech. Um, and, you know, man, I just didn't do the work to prepare in the mm. way that I should have. In past speeches, I've always gone to open mic nights and practiced being on stage in front of people. And there's really no substitute for that. So you go to an open mic I'll go to an and open, give a speech? No, no. I mean, it's a 45-minute speech, so they probably <laughs> wouldn't appreciate say, that. You're going to get the hook, man. Yeah. And our no, next but act. Just, yeah, no, but just the experience of being up there and uh-huh. being comfortable speaking in front of people uh, yeah. is, is a practice. Yeah. And I didn't go through the speech enough. I think that the content of the speech was, was sound, mm-hmm. but I didn't go through it enough times to really time it out and make sure that my stories ended where they were supposed to end and there was good transitions into the next stories. And it resulted in a clunky performance. Mm. Um, And it felt shitty. And I knew it in the moment when I was up there that I wasn't connecting with the students Mm. in the way that I wanted to. And I mean, it was fine. I didn't get booed off stage, but it was not the experience that I wanted to have. And... It, you know, I, I didn't get a, a happy email uh, from the school and the agent. And it was it was a shitty week. And now I know I absolutely will never go into a situation like that without that lack of preparation. But I never had the feeling of I'm not enough in the way that I've in the past gone through experiences like that. And it's really shaken me on a fundamental level. Mm. Um, and there was just still that, that um, memory of being on that mountaintop on the psychedelic trip and having that 360 degree view of what the world truly is and the perspective of time and life and what's important. And that you're never, then that I'm never going to get anywhere that is going to make me feel okay with myself and it needs it needs to happen now Mm. and just having that conversation with myself i know that it seems kind of trite and pedestrian just talking about these very simple lessons but to feel it on that fundamental level was a big deal for me um weren't you talking to me earlier about the two different kinds of learning yeah 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 isn't this sort of what we're talking about where like you can read a million books saying you know Hey, you know, more money's never going to make you happy. But then one day you've got a shit ton of money and your life sucks. And you're like, oh, oh, now I get it. Right. Like, oh. we, we were talking about uh, Josh Waitskin, who is uh, the um, basis for the book and the movie Searching for Bobby Fischer. And he's a badass martial artist who's right. ton of, won a ton of world titles. And what he's really uh, good at is learning and dissecting excellence in a similar way that Tim Ferriss does. And uh, he now uh, trains um, financial moguls um, in noticing decision-making and how to get in touch with their intuition. How to fuck up the world more efficiently. Exactly, exactly. But but the lesson that he was talking about is that um, many times, to your point, we can hear things... Uh, a million times, but until we break our own arm or uh, really lose all of our own money, we don't gain, right. we don't internalize the lessons. So yeah. uh, what he works to do is 
is uh, figure out how he can get his clients to internalize lessons without having to experience themselves those lessons themselves. Yeah. Yeah, and that's when I gave you shit about putting gas in your diesel. Yeah, diesel car. that was a big one. I can tell <laughs> so you. I can tell you. I'm that. trying to internalize the lesson without going through it myself. Oh, well, there's that special yeah. type of sinking feeling yeah, that really like, happens in the pit of did your stomach. I just do what I think I just did. Yeah. yeah. Well, I liked how you left that in. By the way, for people listening here, we're referring to which video? Oh, it's your chasing mavericks. Your your surfing mavericks and it starts before dawn and your car breaks down and your buddy who's filming it he says i went back through like earlier footage and i think you put gas in this engine dude and you're like no i didn't do that i like that you left that in uh, a little self-deprecating you know insight there uh, but i i've got this van as you know people who listen to this probably know i've got this van and it's diesel and i've only put gas in it once or twice and so when i saw that i thought fuck that is well, you, you have put gas in it before. No, no, I mean diesel. Uh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I've only fueled it up like yeah. once or twice. So it's, but I, that's something I need to be really conscious of. Well, diesels are dangerous because the gas It'll fit fits right in. in. Yeah. yeah, you don't need to worry about it if you, you have a gas You would think they would have worked that out by now. Yeah. I mean, they've got the unleaded versus regular thing where they change the size of the hole and all that. There should be something. It's that one of those systems that hasn't idiot caught up proof yet. It. I mean, and speaking of like it, obvious idiot proofing that hasn't taken place, why are we still using zeros and O's in passwords? Because nobody knows. It's like seven, is that an O or a zero? Uh, nobody knows. They look this fucking same. Stop using them. How long do you think it's going to be before we use only fingerprint and facial recognition passwords? Yeah, soon. I mean, on my phone, it's already fingerprint. Dude, I lose track of my passwords yeah. so frequently because yeah. there's like 10 different ones. You're not supposed to use the same like... one. And also keys. Why do we still have keys? We're walking around with these pieces of metal in our pocket. That's so stupid in a digital world. You know, everything should be either fingerprint or combination. At worst, combinations. Yeah. You know, have the information. How do you feel about RFID chips? If everything was in your... Um, like in your palm and oh was, like actually yeah in, actually in, i don't want in. i don't trust anyone enough to let them in you know yeah. implant shit in my body yeah. no you talk to edward snowden about that one he yeah. might convince you <laughs> yeah. further i think yeah no i'm not into that uh you mentioned tim ferris and and you're this guy who you know excellence hacking excellence and all that i i'm sort of against excellence as a concept do you I, tell i i think I think what we need to be doing is not getting better and more efficient and because I think we're fundamentally going in the wrong direction as a species. So this frenzy to go faster and further and, you know, never, never enough and never, you know, oh, I'm never content. I'm always getting more and going like that's the exact opposite of what I think we should be doing. I think we should be chilling the fuck out, slowing the fuck down thinking about what we're doing long and hard before we take another fucking step. So all this, I, I've got a lot of friends life in that hacking. world, life hackers, you know, Rogan and Aubrey have on it and they're selling, you know, alpha brain and this and that. And like, I, I love these people, but I feel like it's all like, no, we don't need to be getting optimal everything. We need to be just 
chilling out and well, enjoying life because it's almost over. I don't care how old you are, your life's almost over. Well, I would argue that a big part of missing life for a lot of people is that they become too busy. That's it. And, and busyness is what um, detours us from being able to think deeply about any one thing, yeah. question the premise, as and I know you're a big it, fan of. Yeah, and you were talking about the, the technology is pulling our attention constantly away from what matters. But, but I'm, I'm going to argue against your point uh-huh. right, right now because I would say that what Tim Ferriss um, does is that he gives pragmatic steps to unbusy yourself. And, yeah. and allow you to um, make time for the important things. But how unbusy is Tim Ferriss? I'm sure he's a pretty busy guy. See, that, that's what it comes down to to me. It's like, it's like these financial advisors who charge a lot of money to tell you what to do with your money. If you're so good with money, why do you want mine? Right? If you're a spiritual advisor... Why are you charging 500 bucks to, for people to come for a weekend to listen to your fucking spiritual advice? How come you're not off just being happy? Yeah, but so many people are in a hole that they don't know how to get out of. Giving someone a step, like saying, hey, you should uh, meditate in the morning or do a five-minute journal. If you win the morning, you win the day. The first hour of your day is the most important, clearly. <laughs> Here's uh, a formula. Right. Yeah. Well, th- so there are formulas that I do think are important and can have these profound effects on the rest of our lives. Mm-hmm. And without that map, a lot of times, um, it all seems too big and audacious to take the first step, which is the most important one. Neil, who we were with this morning, uh, said to me, was it Neil or was it Duncan Trussell? That's how fucked up my life is. I, I confuse Neil and Duncan Trussell sometimes. Well, we weren't with Duncan Trussell this morning. <laughs> we, I can tell not. you that. I'd love to see him on I, a surfboard, I, though. I'll give him a surf lesson. <laughs> Duncan, get a, get a free surf lesson from Kyle. Uh, so I was talking with somebody, I think it was one of those guys, about uh, gurus and all that, and... They said, I never trust a spiritual person in the material world. And I think that I'm very skeptical of people who are selling answers, you know, because if you really have an answer, you don't need to be selling it. You're like you're beyond that, you know, and uh, and if you're selling something, then, yeah, maybe it's not. I don't know. I mean, I don't mean to be giving. No, no, any, I love this. I any, think I think this is an interesting time. conversation. Let's keep going. With I it. just, I, I'm just, you know, I often quote the the line, you know, uh, admire those who seek the truth and flee from those who claim to have found it. Right. So any anyone who's got like, oh, here's how you're gonna like organize your life. Right. Here's because you mentioned you mentioned you're talking about this therapist and how uh, you know within a few sessions you sort of know what the person's issue is, but it could take them years to arrive at it. Well, the reason it takes so long is that you can't just tell someone, uh, you know, you're too hard on yourself because you're the youngest of five, and so you always felt inadequate compared to your older siblings, and blah, blah, blah. Well, shit, now that you're telling it to me, I know. (laughs) So you need to back off and be easy you got a powerful voice, man. you got to watch what kind of advice you're giving people. uh, I'm not giving advice. What I'm saying is, like, you can't do that because if you hear it coming from outside, it's like, yeah, whatever. It's like... You know, it's like what we were saying earlier. You can read all these books about how having lots of money isn't going to solve your problem. But until you actually experience it, you don't feel it on a visceral level. I, 
I think that there, uh, uh, you're right in the sense that there are seminar junkies, right? There are a lot of people who who seek that kind of advice constantly, but aren't willing to do the work themselves. And there are fucking shysters. Yeah. There are so many people in the world who are selling their bullshit formula for happiness that it's a great it's a great business. I'm telling you, it's a fuck. I could be yeah. making millions doing it, but it's bullshit because happiness first of all happiness is bullshit there is no happiness happiness is a transitional state just like you know enjoying food you need to be hungry to enjoy food to savor food to really you know savor sex you need to be horny first there there has to be a darkness to appreciate the light and everybody's just like show me how to find the light i want light all the time that's because you're a dumbass american who thinks that your birthright is to be happy and comfortable all the time it's impossible it's like you know you, you, can't you need be to be wet. aware of the duality of both worlds exactly and and Happiness is not the point. Meaning is the point. You, what you talked about, the feeling of, of helping someone who needs help. There's a reason that feels good. That's a deeply human feeling. And that's as close to happy as we're going to get. And that's not about your back getting scratched. That's about you scratching someone else's back. Yeah, yeah, know? man. And I, I would so one thing that uh, was really helpful for me during my, my ayahuasca ceremony uh, and that whole experience is that I happened to be reading a book called Waking Up by Sam Harris. And one of my favorite quotes in it is, it says, to walk down any uh, spiritual aisle of a bookstore is to confront the credulity and yearning of our species. Right. Right. So, I, so I, what he's talking about and what I really agree with is that people are, we have this yearning to believe, right? We want to believe and believe and that it's all magical and I think that it's very important to be able to parse the two, right? I can say that I had a very profound experience using this plant medicine, but that doesn't necessarily um, make me think that, oh, wow, he's right about chemtrails and the, the earth might really be flat. What do I know? I have no idea. I'm like, no, there are certain things that we know and there are certain things that we need to be very discerning about. And... I do think that having people who can help us discern um, is really important. And that, but that is, I think, the educator, the educator versus the, um, the cult. And that, oh, you need to get the monthly subscription and come to every yeah. seminar right. to really get the full benefits. And that's why I do believe um, people like Tim Ferriss more than I do others, because there, I've gained pragmatic advice from him. Like I've shifted my morning routines as a result, but then I'll go for a long time without listening to or reading any of his stuff. And we seem like that. Okay, that's a perfectly that was a perfectly okay transaction between yeah. the two of us. And right. there's not this kind of need to be feeding into a right. constant belief. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I and I want to see you know on on the part of the person who's giving the advice i want to see uh an absence of ego right when i see ego when i see their need like in a deepak chopra sort of you know look the at all the diamonds glasses. and yeah exactly he's like come on man give me a fucking break with this the rhinestone glasses yeah yeah so who uh is someone who you respect 
and who gives advice to other people? Uh, well, that's a good question. I mean, is that uh, happens when you get one podcaster? Yeah, on you're, podcast? you're, you're, Neil does this too. The first time I did a, my first podcast episode ever was uh, with Neil. And within 10 minutes, he, he, he was asking me about my relationship with my mother. It's like, <laughs> is this how this works? I mean, hey, my, that's what happens when you name your podcast Tangentially Speaking. Yeah, exactly. I should call it, you know, I ask the questions here. Um, uh, what was the question? Oh, the, who do I question, admire? Yeah, who, who do you admire gives that, that gives advice? Because you clearly um, have... You know, Montaigne, maybe, you know. People, who's that? The French, French essayist from the 1600s. You know, it's like, I, I think there are lots of individual people I admire. Um, you know, like my friend Stanley. I, what I admire are people who give advice when it's asked for. But professional advice givers, you know, and I guess I'm one. I don't know. I do these podcasts where I answer people's letters. I don't know why they ask me. I don't know why people listen to it, but they do. So, okay, if, if you know, 80,000 people are going to want to hear what I have to say about it, I guess I'll say something. But to your point, they're asking. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. They're and, asking. And they can choose questions. to download or not, and I'm not charging for it. So I think I'm just very, you know, I... I I feel like very skeptical of people's motivations and, um, you know, and I don't mean to be giving Tim Ferriss a hard time. I've never met the guy. I'm sure he's a wonderful guy. But I read his first book, The 4-Hour Workweek, while on a safari in Alaska or in Africa, interestingly. And a lot of the stuff that's in there, stuff I've been doing my whole life, like make your money and dollars and go spend it in Thai bot, you know, and, uh, you know, so I learned early on how to sort of leverage going between different countries and, uh, you know, how quality of life is not about how expensive something is. It's, you know, you get a good sleeping bag and, you know, you can sleep in a lot of beautiful places with a nice sleeping bag and a tent or a van, you know, a cheap van or whatever. Um, so I agreed with a lot of it. Um, but I remember there was a point in there where he said, a lot of that book is about setting up this like passive income by importing bullshit from China. Like, really? That's what you want to do with your life? Like, okay, fine. You can get an assistant to do most of it and you can blah, blah, blah. But I felt like there was never a fundamental moment where, where he stepped back and said, okay, you can do this, possibly. You can, you know, okay, there's a market for this doodad and you can find someone in China who will make it. And you can find a fulfillment company who will do the shipping and you can like line it all up and then step back and take your 12%. Yeah. But there was never a moment where it's like, does the world need those fucking doodads? Yeah. Who's suffering in this supply chain? And where do all... they end up? They yeah. end up in the fucking ocean. And I just feel, like I said earlier, like if we're going in the wrong direction, the last thing we need is to be putting effort into getting there faster. You know, and so I have this fundamental disagreement with the trajectory of modernity. And uh, so all these things about hacking, getting more efficient, getting better, getting optimal this, optimal that. It just feels like it's all going, wait, we're going in the wrong direction. And, and you know, on a global scale, environmentally, I feel like that. And uh, on a personal sort of individual level, I feel like... Um, you know, as I said earlier, it's like this obsession with excellence is 
you know, like my Twitter handle used to be, it was a carpe fucking DM, right? It was my little slogan there, right? And then one morning I woke up at like noon and I was like, oh, I don't really carpe diem very much. I mean, sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. <laughs> I know. I've, I've, I've met you today. I've already noticed three hammocks. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm into hammocks. <laughs> yeah. So, but that, you know, that's like, so then I changed it to a carpe diem within reason or something like that, you know, because it's, it's self-contradictory. If you get too hung up on always being excellent and, and, you know, making the most of every day, then what are you doing? As you said, you get so busy, the fucking days go by. John Lennon said, life's what happens while you're busy with other things, right? I kind of feel like life's so short, we should spend as much of it as possible just chilling out and paying attention. Not necessarily trying to get ahead, not trying to, you know, write the next great book or you know, make another million dollars. Tim Ferriss in that book, he says, before you get into all this money thing, pick a number. That's how much money you need to be happy, right? Pick that number and write it down because if you don't write it down, it'll constantly shift. And then when you have that much money, pull out. Yeah, I do. How long ago did Tim Ferriss pass that number? Right. Yeah. Right? So... If I ever meet Tim Ferriss and we have a serious conversation, if like I'm on his podcast or he's on mine, what I would want to know is, Tim, how come you're still doing this? What's your pro- what's your personal life like? Are you in love? Have you do you have love in your life? Why are you still chasing money, dude? You got so much of it. Why are you still chasing fame? Why are you still doing this? Yeah, man. And that's, that gets back to what I said about why it's taken me so long to write the second book. Because yeah. I'm very leery. I'm very wary of becoming the guy who's chasing something. Right. You know? You know, one thing that I do at the end of every year as everyone else is making New Year's resolutions, right? January 1st. Right, what do you want to do next year? Is I look back. Yeah. And I think about... What were the best things that happened to me in the past year? Mm. What were the most important th- lessons I learned? Yeah. And what experiences are going to stick with me? Right. And I find that that's a much more effective gauge on what is truly important to me. Right. And then that will inform the next year. Yeah. What, what, did, what happened last year that I want to deepen this year? Yeah. Continuation. And when we yeah. give ourselves time to, to really have that space and reflect a lot of times things bubble to the surface that we didn't really expect right and we a lot of times will realize that maybe we're on a ladder that we um that's not going to the right rooftop yeah right that was man that that was a, a big uh thing for me from so i did that first um story on the the banking system mm. and then for the next um from 19 to 24 or 25, I uh, did a YouTube series called Surfing for Change. I'd go to different surf destinations around the world and I would cover environmental and social issues. Um, and as I said, after a while, it was this like, oh, well, next year I'm going to do a story on the Indonesia trash epidemic. And uh, the, the following year, I'm going to do this and that. And I could feel myself talking about it at parties. And it just felt 
gross. Like it felt this like this chasing of, of like what's the next story and I am unimportant if I don't have the next story or this leveraged information that I'm going to tell you and you're right. going to respond by saying, "Whoa, Kyle, that's so interesting." You're right. so fucking interesting right <laughs> there it is your ego is getting involved yeah in and yeah. uh i'm very right on right on the same page as you are um around what the podcast has done for for me because it doesn't feel nearly as much like an ego trip and i can mm. take the time to have different people on and see what different stories resonate um and i learned major lessons man i am um, a big one that i had was uh and probably someone who I was the most nervous to have on my show was this guy named Thomas Morton. He's a vice correspondent. He's oh, the, yeah, yeah. He's the, the skinny guy. the skinny yeah, guy with the glasses. Funny. Super funny. funny. And I really respect his ability to embed in these subcultures mm -hmm. and show the humanity. Yeah. yeah. He's so non-threatening. Yeah. And he did a story on um, the... Pacific, the North Pacific gyre and the, the garbage patch out there. By the way, if anyone thinks that there's an island in the middle of the Pacific twice the size of Texas, it doesn't exist. Yeah. But it's there a is a gyre, which is this huge toilet bowl in the middle of the ocean. So if you throw a plastic bottle uh, off the coast of California, eventually, eventually it's going to break down. It's going to end up out there and it's this plastic soup. Yeah. But he did this story and... Um, Man, it, it really inspired me to see someone go at it from such an unpretentious way. Yeah. And it was an environmental story that instead of uh, your mom showing it to you, your big brother was going to show it to you. Right. And I really liked that about him. Right. And I sat down with him and I asked him something along the lines of, you know, so you've had your Vice show, you now on Vice HBO, you have your own Viceland show. It's called Balls Deep. It's hilarious. If anyone wants to check it out, uh, what's it been like for you to navigate this success? And he told me, you know, man, there just hasn't really been enough time for me to question where I am in this whole thing or even let my ego catch up with what's been happening. It's just been so much about the process. And that really stuck with me. And I don't think that he realized how much it stuck with me until he said it. Because up until that point, I was very much like thinking like, oh, yeah, like the next big story isn't going to make me be okay. And it's so much based around so much more important to focus on the process than it is anything else. Um, but those, type, those types of insights from people that I gain, um, I find, have, have really helped me. Yeah. Yeah, he's good. Do you know uh, Louis Thoreau? No, I don't. Same kind of vibe. Same kind of... He's British. Um, and he's done a bunch of uh, sort of embedded things with like uh, survivalists. And he did a, a really interesting thing with sex offenders in L.A. They're living in halfway houses and, you know, trying to get back into the community and stuff. Totally non-judgmental sort of dorky it comes at it with a just like i don't know what's going on you know yeah. you know please explain it to me and um he does really good work I, I i like him a lot seems like a good listener yeah exactly he, i really enjoy that type of news yeah well that that's 
anything else is bullshit. You know, like, I don't, I don't want to hear about you. I want to hear about the guy you're trying to introduce me to. Right. It's like, uh, although I don't know. I mean, I, I'm sort of the opposite of that, I guess. Right. So our, our friend Kaj Larson, who we went surfing with this morning, used to be a correspondent for CNN. Um, and now he works for vice and he, was on uh, John Stewart a couple of years ago. Mm. Uh, they were covering a story on how CNN had gutted their uh, on the ground investigative journalism team. Yeah. And uh, John Oliver, who was at the time on Stewart, was was interviewing one of the guys from CNN, saying, uh, "So, like, how do you um, get these stories um, now? Let's say that you're going to a, a war torn country like Somalia." Uh, how, how are you going to get these stories? I'm like, well, you know, we have all these new tools like Skype. Uh, he looks at me and said, yeah, but I don't know how many uh, refugees have Skype. You still need to go there to really get the story. And that's what Kaj does. He's, he's very good at going in there and, uh, and being on the ground and getting things that you couldn't necessarily get in the newsroom. Have you had him on your podcast? I have. He's episode one. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. that's right. He yeah. mentioned that. Yeah. Yeah. I asked him if he'd do this podcast. He's, he's, yeah. He's, uh, he's also in the intro where I have a series of voices coming in. He's like, I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. But really? it's fun, oh, man. Yeah. It's, and he, so he grew up on the same street as me in Santa Cruz and oh. has had a big influence on my life as I've been navigating the field and learning how to be on camera and tell a story that doesn't suck. Uh. <laughs> it's funny. We've been talking, I don't know how long, and I've stopped the thing a couple of times, but uh, well over an hour probably, and we haven't really talked about surfing. No. Which, which is what I thought we were going to be talking about. We haven't even really talked about We talked about waves for a while. But. Well, a lot of the stories that uh, I cover, again, are... Um, are related to the ocean. Yeah. I think the ocean is fascinating. Man. Yeah. It's so unexplored. And um, a lot of re- really interesting environmental and social issues can be told through that lens. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but like a lot of stories too that I didn't mean to go for it. No, no. I was just saying like a lot of the stories that I do too, like aren't, aren't even related to the ocean. I was, but to, what we were talking about at the beginning of this, my main surf sponsor, Patagonia, will I'll go around and do um, surf trips with them. And this last year, I was down in um, in Chile, and uh, the waves weren't very good. And I was down there with my girlfriend, and we learned about uh, an indigenous conflict happening in the south of Chile. It wasn't related to surfing at all, but it, it was a really fascinating story. Um, that I was like, well, we have a camera. Let's just go down there and, and see what's up. So uh, in the south of Chile, there is a group. It's an indigenous group called the Mapuche. They actually make up about 9% of Chile's population. And they're in a region called um, the Araucanía region. And in the end, at the end of the, the 1800s, when um, Chile was at war with Bolivia and Argentina or sorry, uh, Bolivia and Peru, and they, they won that war. They then sent troops south to Arcania and um, took a lot of this native land. Um, 
And today, uh, it's much of it is used for forestry. Forestry is Chile's second largest export behind mining. Um, and the, the conflict has turned more violent where Mapuche are starting to um, burn down churches and cars. And uh, what happened was a, a number of generations ago, when European settlers were coming into Chile, uh, they settled in the Arcania region. And now these are this three generations deep. They're farmers. They don't, a lot of them are just kind of caught in this conflict. Yeah. And the Mapuche are demanding their land back. Right. Right. And so it's, it's just It's very, like we were saying earlier about the oil workers. It's like, no, this is my father and my grandfather. This is our land. Like, right. Yeah. Right, yeah. And right. uh, it's a, a really sticky situation. And um, uh, yeah, so we had a, uh, there weren't waves. So we jammed down to, uh, to the Arcania region and we interviewed um, both Mapuche and Chilean settlers um, who were in the midst of this conflict. But I hadn't done anything that, that kind of opened my eyes to the, how messy the multi-generational aspect of um, environmental and social issues uh, is. Yeah. But that, I mean, that was one where I, I don't speak Spanish very well even, so talk about listening and just sitting back and uh, then after the fact, yeah. translating it all and trying to tell a fair story. Um, so how do you uh, how do you deal with the technical issues? Do you have a cameraman or yeah we had a cameraman uh, and we we hired a, a Chilean journalist named Nicholas Rios who had been one of the few journalists who had covered this this issue. There hadn't been any video documentary done on the the story uh, or done on this issue, um, but we hired him uh, to be the producer of it and went down there and we shot it and then we, we cut it back up in San Francisco. I do work for um, Seeker Network, which is Discovery's digital arm. Hmm. Um, so a lot of times I'll, I'll pitch them the stories, like the, the pig story was um, through Seeker Network and the chili story was through them. So I do periodic work for them. So do they, they then pay for the story you've already shot and edited? Yeah. Yeah. And that's how you finance it, hopefully. Yeah. I, yeah, I piece my world together very much, if you yeah. haven't gotten that sense already. I yeah. make a little money off surfing, some money off speaking, uh, journalism work. Right. Making like 120 bucks off the podcast a month. Nice. Holla. <laughs> Rolling in Rolling. It. Yeah. But it's fun, man. You're selling t-shirts and decals and shit? Not yet. Not no, yet. But I did have merch. a... I've been thinking about this. I, you'd appreciate this. I had a, a woman on my show who's a, a sex educator. Mm-hmm. Her name's Amy Baldwin. And uh, she was talking about um, the yoni. And oh, got to talk about the yoni. Got to talk about the yoni. And uh, she was talking about how she has a client um, who uh, has had a ton of sexual trauma, but she, um, her boyfriend is just this love warrior. And she was talking about how he's just supporting her and meeting her in all these sessions and she's making huge progress. And I was thinking, yeah, man, I think that Amy, my, my alter ego on this podcast could be Yoni the Love Warrior. <laughs> so we were thinking about making t-shirts and beer koozies called Yoni the Love Warrior. Because you can't do like a, the Kyle Tierman show. 
with beer Yoni. koozie. <laughs> but I was thinking Yoni the Love Warrior could work. I'm thinking a Yoni beer cozy is a really good idea. Yeah, keep your beer warm. If anyone out there knows how to uh, print it, we could do some Yoni the Love Warrior. Uh, I was thinking like, yeah, it'd be like a guy like like water skiing on sharks. And mm. so he says Yoni the Love Warrior. So the guy's name is Yoni? Yeah. That's like your alter ego. That's when you are the love warrior. Wow. Yeah. I like the love warrior. That's a good concept. I think I'm giving it to you, though, because if anyone's Yoni, the love warrior. No, no, no. I can't be Yoni. I'm, uh, what's the opposite of Yoni's pussy? What's, uh, you know that, right? Yeah. Yeah, Okay. Uh, (laughs) Wait, what? (laughs) I was going to say, because you're, I don't know, you're, you know, calling your love warrior pussy. Right. I am pussy, the love warrior. Well, the word's recently been taken back, if you didn't hear. By the, the pussy, pussy is strong now. Oh, like is you, it? Yeah, you oh. can't say like, oh, you're a pussy. I said that at a. I was I was um, complaining about Ted at a party one time, and I said something about how it's like they're they're so afraid to offend everybody. It's like it's run by a bunch of pussies, and and uh, some people laughed, and some people didn't. And then this woman said, "Is anyone else uncomfortable with the fact that Chris just used the word pussy in that way?" And then we had this whole conversation about it, and um, uh, it turned like it, it be, calling someone a pussy has nothing to do with genitalia. It's a pussy cat. Right? It's a pussy cat. It's a pussy cat. Yeah. You, you run away from everything. Yeah. You run and hide under the sofa. Yeah, you're a pussy. And and so this woman getting offended at it was like, what the fuck are you talking about, lady? Interpretation of the use. Yeah. Well, she she just didn't understand it at all. And then it's like, oh, I'm a bad guy because I I didn't. You know, I didn't say that's run by a bunch of vaginas. Right. Well, I, I really appreciate what uh, people like Rogan do to stand up for words. And <laughs> going back to our conversation yeah. when we were walking up the stairs after surfing this morning around what you said something along the lines of uh, questioning what issues um, in the future we will be judged oh, for. Right. The absurdity. Right. right? What are, because we look in the past and we see the absurdity of certain things that we've done as a species. And clearly there's a lot that we're doing now that's still absurd. Um, and you said something along the lines of that it's, it's the issues that we're afraid to talk about or right. are uncomfortable to yeah, talk about. That's just not spoken about. Right. Yeah. 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 If, what do you think are those, some of those big issues right now? Um, well, like, what are we going to look back if there are people 50 or 100 years from now? They'll look back on, like, our total, uh, unwillingness to confront what we're doing to the planet. You know, obviously, that's going to be a big one. Uh, you and I agreed on the industrial farming and, you know, the, what we're doing to animals, treating animals as if they're not living things deserving of lives, you know, uh, chickens and pigs and cows and everything. I think those are going to be big. Um, Do you eat meat? Yeah. 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 How, so how does that play into the moral landscape? I'm a fucking hypocrite. Ah! Yeah. I, see, I think that um, there's... Uh, again, I feel like, you know, we're on a on a aircraft carrier that's steaming toward the edge of the ocean we're about to fall off and so i kind of feel like you know i mentioned this friend of mine who's a vegan and very judgmental and very sort of you know oh the mm, she doesn't like milk and her coffee freaks her out and like all this stuff and it's like you know i see your point and i, I get it but 
but I feel that she's part, she's buying into the same sort of like, you know, strive for excellence kind of mentality, which is like, you're not, the world's not going to change because you don't eat bacon. It's not going to change because you are, you know, judging all your friends and, you know, because you're afraid of gluten and whatever. The world is doing, the things are happening the way they're happening. And, you know, I understand people who say, well, you know, change begins at home and you can only change yourself. And uh, I, yeah, I agree with that. And, and I, but I think that there's a certain amount of energy that we have to deal with these things. And so, um, I kind of feel like people who are very focused on, uh, certain aspects of their lives, they're missing the point in other aspects of their lives. And so, I, you know, like I studied martial arts when I was a kid. I was in the grocery store yesterday. There was a kid in front of me on the line who had his karate the, the gi, gi on. on. Yeah. And he's like a 13-year-old dorky kid. And I thought about myself and I was a 13-year-old dorky kid and I did kung fu. And why do you do kung fu? Joe and I talked about this. Like you do martial arts when you're a kid because you're tired of getting beat up, right? And it gives you a sense of like that you can defend yourself and it's sort of like it... it, it um, it's responding to uh, an emotional need. Is it actually solving the problem? No, it's not solving the problem of violence. It's, you know, if somebody wants to beat you up, they're going to beat you up. You're not, you know, you, you have a black belt in karate. It doesn't mean someone can't walk up behind you and smack you in the back of the head with a fucking brick and you're going to go down just like everyone else. It's silly. So we... we put these emotional band-aids on ourselves and feel that somehow we're now protected from this thing or we're not participating in this thing that we find morally objectionable. But I think that's generally self-delusion. We still are, you know? So we're still on the ship. We're still on the ship that's steaming in the wrong direction. And you can walk toward the back of the ship and for those 10 minutes, convince yourself that you're no longer steaming toward utter destruction, but you are, you're still on the ship, right? And there's no way to get off the ship. So, you know, again, I, I, I know I'm sort of, this is like yeah, the no, theme I'm, of the I'm, day. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and corner this idea as best I can because I do, yeah. I do think, I do agree with you that um, if we focus too much on the impact of what we're doing, um, it can become a, v- a very neurotic way of, of living. And I was saying earlier that like, I do my stories not because I think they're going to change the world, but just because I think this is interesting stuff and I right. want to tell other people about right. it. But through that, some, am- some amount of change happens, right? Through your book and through doing good work that you are morally in line with and think is important, change does happen and it can happen now at a quicker rate than any other time before um so how much do we hold ourselves to those moral standards yeah and and i i grapple with this as well as i said i went on my first hunt recently and i probably reduced my meat consumption 70 percent, but i do have these uh caveats that i've put in where when i'm traveling i I'm still okay eating meat. And I'd, I'd, I've set it up in a way where I don't feel like I'm constantly failing every time I have a bite of chicken. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, I do question how easy should we be on ourselves um, versus how much should we hold ourselves to a, a high moral standard? Yeah. Because I, I, I think that um, uh, 
what's the word I'm looking for? Um, being cynical is, is highly corrosive um, way of thinking. Yeah, yeah. It, and it's hard sometimes to distinguish being cynical, you, the word used in that sense, with... Um, Honesty. Yeah, or, or just like an acknowledgement of the complexity of the situation. So, for example, I eat meat. I don't eat a lot of meat, but I do eat meat. But I, you know, free-range, grass-fed, uh, you know, cage-free chicken, eggs, and stuff like that. But but I've got disposable Chicken's income to do that. Chicken's got a little massage beforehand. Yeah. Told that they friends. were good enough. Yeah, Give them exactly. some ayahuasca. Exactly. Saw, saw God. And hey, then the head got cut You know, the, you're joking about that, but, uh, you know, reindeer uh, eat Amanito muscaria mushrooms, right? And then the meat is hallucinogenic. <laughs> Jim Fadiman told me that. I tell you that story. The, the whole flying reindeer and yeah. Santa Claus and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I make gestures toward that in terms of my consumption and. Uh, uh, I certainly agree with what you're saying about moving money from Bank of America or Chase that, you know, these big banks, they're financing all these horrible, destructive things into savings and loans and local banks that are, you know, more focused on uh, investing and wisely. Totally cool with stuff like that. Um, I just I feel that. uh we need to be wary of feeling, you know, this sort of, especially living in L.A., there's a lot of this self-congratulatory, like, I'm making the world a better place because I switched to Verizon or whatever the fuck it is, you know, that that kind of opt out yeah, of... Pompous, Ted-esque, yeah, and it's, self-congratulatory. It's yeah. I mean, I did this thing recently, uh, the Summit series. Have you heard of that? No, I haven't. It's like a Ted thing. It's all these young you know movers and shakers and they're out to change the world and you know they have these get-togethers where you know you can go they bought a mountain in utah and go to their mountain and you know you'll hang out with the guy who started google and this you know filmmaker and this rapper and uh, you get to hang out with all the cool people and uh, and so i was one of the cool people that you, know, you got to go hang out with uh and it was on a cruise ship so you own this cruise ship. And they had asked me a few times before and I'd said no because, like you, I'd make money speaking sometimes. And so they invited me to the speaking thing and I was like, okay, what's the package? Like, what's the, what's the deal? Like, oh, it's fantastic. You're going to oh, meet all these great people and, you know, it's all free and we'll take great care of you and we're big fans of your work and, oh, you're changing the world. And that, and that. Stroking that ego. ego. Just ego. stroking that smoke. ego. So much smoke going up my ass. It was coming out my ears. But then, like, after three or four phone calls, I finally, like, got him down to, like, what do you pay? Oh, no, we don't, we don't pay our speakers anything. Oh, really? Okay, so you use me to lure people in who are going to pay several thousand dollars for the great chance to hang out with me and whomever else, and yet you pay me nothing. Well, this is the new business model, right? This is the TED model and everything. And so I said no, but uh, they kept inviting me and inviting me. And then finally I agreed to go on this cruise because Wim Hof was going to be there. And like five or six people I know and like are going to be there. And I thought, oh, we'll all be on this ship. We can hang out. Yeah, do some ice plunges together. Turns out like we're all so busy being sold that we didn't have time to hang out with each other at all. Right. Um, But so we're on this ship. These people paid several thousand dollars each. There were 
2,000 people or something on this ship. It's a giant cruise ship. Takes off from Miami. Three days back to Miami. We didn't go anywhere. We went in a big fucking circle on a giant cruise ship, pumping God knows how much carbon into the atmosphere, who knows how much shit into the ocean. For what? Well, all these, all these people are talking about how their app is going to change the world. And, you know, we've got this new way to grow algae that's going to blah, blah, blah. Come on now. What the fuck, man? We would have been better off if we had all just stayed home. My friend Josh Fox was invited and he like wrote them this really scathing letter saying like, you think you're helping the world? You know, look at what you're doing. He has Gaslands, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great film. Yeah. He's cool. He just released a film about Standing Rock. Um, I forget what it's called. Wake Up, I think. Awakening or something like that. Do you feel like speaking too much on the same subject ossifies your thought process? Uh, no, not yet. But I can imagine it would if I... I mean, as far as Sex at, at Dawn goes, I felt like there was That's definitely... That's the sequel, Sex at Gone. Sex at Gone. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there was... Um, For people over 50. <laughs> Hey, hey, I resemble that remark. There was a, a ramp up. I mean, I did so many interviews, you know, like after the 50th interview or something, I look back and it's like, oh man, I wish I'd like worked out these sound bites in advance instead of arriving at them organically because it would have been really good if I'd had this succinct uh, explanation back when I was talking to CNN or whatever. Um, so there was there was definitely a, a point where it's like, okay, I got this down now and I, I know which things engage with which audiences better. Um, but I find it endlessly fascinating. So I, I don't feel like it's ossified for me. I do feel like I've gotten to the point where I'm tired of talking about sex, which I never thought would happen, but it has. Although I imagine if I just took a break for a year or two, I'd, I'd get interested again. Um, but no, I find public speaking to be, you know, getting back to what we were saying earlier about uh, the podcast versus writing and things like that. I really enjoy public speaking because I like seeing the reaction. And I and the reason I, I had a uh, difficulty with Ted is that they want your talk to be so rehearsed that you can just do it, you know, with your eyes closed and, you know, counting backwards. And that's not the way I like to do it. I like to see what's connecting. I like to shift. I like to change. I like to joke. I like to be spontaneous. For me, it's, I'm much more like a jazz musician than a classical, you know. And you can think on your feet, which some yeah. people can't do. Yeah, I can think on my feet and I don't I see where they're coming from. They don't, they don't want the deer in the headlights moment for one of their right, speakers. Right, but, but what they're doing is they're they're assuming everyone's the same. And, you know, I had already given probably 200 talks by the time they invited me to do that thing. And so, it, you know, in my estimation, it should be enough where it's like, you've seen me, you've seen what I do, you've seen me in front of hundreds of people before, you know, okay, you're Ted. I'm not going to, like, freeze up. Have you ever know? thought about getting into comedy? Uh, I've, I've spoken at some comedy festivals, actually. I did the Bridgetown Comedy Festival in Portland, and I hang out with these comics so much that, you know, I'm kind of comfortable in that world. I've thought about it. I, I've got an idea for a book 
which, you know, I don't know if I'll ever get to any of these books uh, at this point, but I had an idea for a book where I, I would do five completely novel things in my 50s um, because to sort of just to throw light on the fact that I think, especially for men, being in their 50s is hard. The the 50th birthday is hard because it's like... You've got a bunch of 20-something-year-olds cracking jokes about your sex life. That kind of thing. Um, but, it, but it's like, I think a lot of people see that as the beginning of old. You know, it's like 40s, it's middle age. And then 50s, like, oh, fuck, 50. And when I turned 50, a lot of people were sort of patting me on the shoulder and like, yeah, it's going to be all right, you know. And I was like, what's going on? I'm having like the best time ever, you know. And uh, and so I thought about it. And I thought the reason it's really hard for people and not for me is that most people, when they turn 50, it's like you're you're roped in. You're you're doing what you do and you're going to do that till you fucking retire. Yeah. And there's no change. There's no challenge it's just like keep your fucking head down just man. keep writing sorry for the delayed response to people until you die <laughs> exactly exactly yeah and you got kids in college and you're married to a woman you've been married to for a long time and your sex life is probably boring at best and it's like yeah whereas my life is like whoa everything's new i'm doing this new shit i'm changing this i'm doing that i'm you know everything's totally different so i thought well what I'll do is in my 50s, I'll do five totally new things that, you know, there's a chance I'll fail at. So there will be, you know, self-deprecating. Like one of them would have something to do with music. Like I'll go to Senegal and learn drumming or I'll go to Colombia and learn salsa dancing or some shit like that, which I'm terrible at. Right. So there will be that sort of humorous, ridiculous aspect to it. And then another thing would be like go to Alaska and learn to fly from a bush pilot. You know, like some character and oh, land on a sick. fucking glacier or something, you know, like that kind of thing. And uh, hunting is one of the things I thought of, like go on a like shoot a fucking animal and feel what that is and face my hypocrisy around meat. And, you know, have that kind of experience that you were describing earlier. Um, yeah. Why did I start talking about this? I don't know, but what I'll absolutely hook up uh, a hunt for you if you want to go out to the Big Island. And make yeah, that yeah, yeah. That that could be because I've never been to to Hawaii. As I said, that would be interesting. It's surreal. But there was you asked me a question that got into this. Well, we were talking about speaking. We were talking about uh, new ideas. I don't know. Let's just keep going with it. I like where we are. There was some. There was some connection. Uh, to what you were saying was that? that was one of those I, one of the the five ideas there's the hunting the flying salsa dancing salsa dancing I don't know man there's something else shit oh, well, the, people listening know what it yeah, is yeah they do people listening are like idiots. you dumbasses I, I you know what? you need some on it. <laughs> I've got beta brain. Yeah. Man, I just don't really know about this whole excellence thing. Yeah. It's just not really for me. <laughs> what were we talking about? It's true, man. Excellence has never been for me. I'm like occasionally above average. That's as good as I'm going to get. So you got any uh, questions about surfing before yeah, we wrap this thing up? Surfing. Well, see, the thing about surfing, if I were going to be... Surfing is like sex for me, but well, surfing's like sex. But you're tired of, of talking about well, it. Well, not not really, but it's it's something that a lot of You've people. You've talked about me so about. much, but no, yeah. I'm, ha- I'm happy to chat about it. But see, the thing, okay, Neil was uh, yesterday when I was, you know, setting up this thing with Neil, 
uh, I don't know if we've explained this properly, that you offered me a surf lesson and I contacted Neil and I was like, hey man, here's this great surfer who's offering me a surf lesson. Do you want to have a surf lesson? Because I know he surfs and I don't. And Neil's like, dude, you got to come out surfing. And I was like, yeah. And what I was telling him is like, you know, I don't like being in the sun a lot. I'm super white. And like being in the ocean, on the ocean, on a fucking sailboat with no shade in midday sun is my idea of fucking hell. You're like a vampire. I'm like a, I'm like a guy who's going to get skin cancer is what I'm like. And so... You got to put on some bronze repellent, dog. Yeah. But see, I don't know that that really works. Pierce bronzing. Yeah. Jackie, Jackie Tan. <laughs> um, but, but anyway, but I really like... The idea of surfing, because, and this gets back to my, my aversion to excellence, you can't force it. You catch a wave. You're not running faster, swimming faster, jumping higher. You're, the, the excellence comes from you having the humility to adapt yourself to this thing that's happening. And all you're doing is riding this thing. You're not really doing anything other than adapting to this thing that's already there. Yeah. I like that. I, I really like the idea of it. I like the rhythm of it. I like the, the being immersed in this sort of natural process that you're just sort of gently adding yourself to. And you're not changing it. You're not redirecting it. You're not building a fucking dam. And, you know, I, I like the humility and the beauty and the sort of unity. That's of it. a good insight because really what you're doing on a wave is pushing against the wave and the wave is pushing back. Right. So it's various pressure points to try and stay in the powerful source of that wave and yeah. wiggle your butt around a little bit and do some cool maneuvers. But really it, it is this relationship to the wave and you're never going to beat the wave and you're never going to outlift the wave. And the best surfers are the ones who are the most graceful. Yeah. Um, and a, a big thing that I've worked on myself, uh, a, a big aspect of my surfing that I've worked on has been outracing the waves. I've had this bad habit of standing up and trying to bump, 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 bump to the next section and try and hit that next section. And my friends told me, dude, that come, it looks really spastic. You need to slow down right. and stand up and notice that landscape. Right. And the best surfers are the ones who are the most graceful and have that innate ability to see where the wave is going to break and where they need to be in relation to that. Um, and man, it's just so much fun. It's endless. The amount of information that's coming in at any one point um, is endless. I'll go down to uh, the end of our street with my girlfriend and I'll say, oh, yeah, it looks like it's a northwest swell and um, there's east wind that's picking up and the tide's going out. Um, and wow, yeah, it looks like there's a little red tide. There's a phytoplankton bloom out mm. there. Uh, but I think that by the afternoon, the wind's going to switch and it's going to turn south. So I'm going to get out there right now. Right. And she'll be like, I, I just see an ocean. Right. Right. So the amount that is um, noticed by surfers is really cool. The Have amount- you ever read Wade Davis? I haven't, no. He wrote a book called The Wayfarers. It's a really good book. I had him on the podcast. He's an, an ethnobotanist, I'll actually. I'll check it out. 
Um, but he, he talks about these, um, these guys in the South Pacific who would be on their, their, those canoes with yeah. the outrigger. And they would see, they could read the waves and be like, oh, there's a storm 2,000 miles in that direction. And so they're doing what you're talking about, but at an even deeper level, they could like see like a piece of a plant floating by. And yeah. by that, they're judging all these things. Everything that's hidden in plain sight. Yeah. When we're going on yeah. a hike, when we're looking at the ocean, there's so much that we're we are not seeing, yeah. um, you know, way back to when we started this, this podcast, when, when you look at a good wave, turn around and look up the mountain, there's most likely going to be some sort of watershed that has created, yeah. uh, the yeah. sediment that That's has, really has cool made thing. this wave. Um, and man, it's, yeah, it's endless. And in the last few years, I've become more and more interested in surfing bigger waves, uh, which I live about a, an hour South of Mavericks, which is a really famous big wave spot. Um, and that takes it to a whole nother level of stakes, which is really fun um, because if it's two feet, you can go out and surf and you'll have a good time no matter what. But when it's 20 or 30 feet, you really need to be in tune with what's happening yeah. and how you're feeling and when the best time is to be able to go out and catch that one wave. And you could, and a lot of guys, myself included, will travel halfway around the world to catch a couple waves at a swell and there's so many different factors that are constantly at play um what's it like to go down you're on a wave 20 feet high and you lose it what do you do do you just like put your hands like protect your head and just know you've got 30 seconds of washing machine to deal with you protect your head that's a big one because the big danger is your the board gonna hits hit you it. in the head yeah. um it's very chaotic, as you might imagine. And Mavericks is a wave where, um, as we were talking about earlier, there's a, it's very deep outside of Mavericks. So the energy comes in at full force and then hits this reef that's shaped kind of like a finger. So all the energy um, is focused on this reef. And that's why you get this, this wave that can be 60 feet and it breaks in the same spot every single time, which is very rare. But then after the finger, it drops off. So it's very deep. And um, a lot of surfers will experience, and I have experienced this too, feeling like you're being grabbed and sucked to the bottom of the ocean. Um, and it's a, it's a frightening and lonely experience. And a lot of the training that we do to surf big waves is to mentally be okay with that situation. So you just try to keep your heart rate as low as possible so you don't burn up your oxygen? You really can't, uh, like, let's, you're sprinting, paddling into these waves, so uh, you already have a high right. heart rate. Right. Um, there was a heart rate monitor put on a surfer at Mavericks, and it was, uh, uh, scientists found out that it was the, the highest continued heart rate of any mammal they had ever observed. It was something like three hours of a heart rate over, I forget the number, but it was, it was something to break a record. So you have a very high heart rate the entire time that you're out there. Mm. And when you get sucked down, uh, very much it's, it's mental. It's about knowing that you're okay. Um, I have a, a game that I'll sometimes play where I'll try and, Think of every person I know whose name starts with the letter A. 
so Andrew, Andrea, Alvaro, and then B, Becca, Brian, and it, just anything to distract yourself from what's happening um, is really helpful. And, and confidence and knowing that you've put enough time training in to be able to handle those situations is really important. Um, but man, it's, it sure is a, an empowering human experience when you make it through those uh, bad wipeouts. And it can be one of the best things that happens is to get held down for a really long time and come up and realize that you're still okay. How long can you hold your breath? I did a breath uh, holding course about a year ago that was um, for big wave surfers. So they mm. put us in a number of different uh, situations, some with a high heart rate, and we would jump into a pool and get held down. And obviously, you can't hold your heart rate, or you can't hold your breath as long uh, with a high heart rate as you can doing a static apnea breath hold. And that's what, where all the world records are right. broken. Um, so we did static apnea breath holds and the longest that I held my breath for there was four minutes and seven seconds, Oof. but that's wow. not, uh, I, I couldn't hold my breath no. for four minutes right. right now after having a cup of coffee. Right. Uh, so that doesn't really come into play. But um, what was very helpful for me is knowing and realizing that when you're holding your breath and you have that first feeling where your diaphragm spasms and that, oh my God, I need to breathe. Oh my God, I need to breathe. You're not even halfway mm. till passing out. Mm. That's right when the work starts getting mm. done. And the people who are very good at holding their breath uh, like free divers, spear fishermen, they have such a good relationship with that diaphragm spasm that they know not to panic when it happens. Right. Um, so I, I gained a ton from that experience. Um, and then, you know, when we're surfing big waves, we put as much safety equipment in place as possible. So we'll have jet skis right. that are safety teams so right. they can come in and, for you. and get you yeah. uh, if a bad situation happens. Yeah. Um, Patagonia actually developed um, one of the first big wave inflation vests recently, which was a game changer. It's a, a vest that goes under your wetsuit and there are CO2 canisters that attach to the vest. And if you get in a really bad situation, you can pull it and it will give you extra air to bring you shoot you to the surface. Yeah. I can say that it doesn't immediately bring you up, especially in a situation that I was talking about where you're getting sucked down. Right. You can pull it and you can still be getting sucked down, yeah. but it's really helpful and it's uh, saved a lot of people's lives. And yeah. we haven't had anyone die in the sport of big wave surfing uh, uh, in quite some time as a result. What about, have you been on waves where there were like dolphins surfing with you or oh, yeah. seals or something? Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, I was in uh, Jeffrey's Bay, South Africa a mm. couple years ago. And in Jeffrey's Bay, you will see flamingos on the beach. You'll see uh, dolphins surfing the waves. And then hopefully you don't see sharks and they have a ton of sharks yeah. down there. But that was an experience where I got to surf a wave and, and uh, there were dolphins swimming on it. That's the coolest cool. animal experience I've ever had was in uh, Sri Lanka a number of years ago. I was surfing a point break and 
they have a lot of elephants in Sri Lanka mm. and a family of wild elephants went on to the beach and were hanging out on the beach when I was surfing a wave by myself. Were they watching you? They were watching. Yeah. They tip, tipped their hat to me. Yeah. You go, Kyle. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Elephants are cool. Yeah, yeah it's a blast, cool. man. Interacting with animals and interacting with nature is such a uh, great human experience. Yeah. In whatever ways that we can do it. Yeah. Well, that's that. You know, you were asking me earlier about you know my connection when I was a kid and all that. I think there's just something. You know, the the word humbling comes to mind, but it's not really about humility. It's like. Like a big storm, I fucking love storms. I love storms because there's something about it that just like cleans your brain and, you know, just the immensity, being inside something so immense. Yeah, it's that feeling of awe. Yeah, and where all these things we've been talking about, being excellent and, you know, all this ego stuff, just it, it it's revealed as meaningless to me, you know, in that instant where... I feel like my deepest purpose on earth is just to notice, not to get people to notice me or just notice, just fucking notice. You know, you're gifted with this incredible consciousness. Just be aware. That's it. You know, that's everything profound. else. That's, that's a I've never heard that uh, said as a purpose, but I really like that. Well, I think Carl Sagan said that that human beings are the universe looking back at itself. You know, and I've, I've been, I was struck by that when I first heard it years ago. And like, yeah, that's what we do. We're, we are the universe somehow turn, you know, looking at itself in the mirror or something. But yeah. And those are the moments when we feel most human. Yeah. Well, that, that's why I, I, you know, admire and, uh, you know, I think what you're doing is so cool because just being out there surfing has got to be so meditative, you know, you must come out and just feel cleansed it can be yeah it can be i think that a lot of times people attach these deep metaphors to surfing and uh people think that it's this kumbaya experience when a lot of times it's a little closer to a serpent's pit on a crowded day right (laughs) but it can be but not in sri lanka when they're yeah and those are the moments that we're searching for yeah yeah all right we've been talking forever man let's let's uh let's eat all right. Thanks. Thanks for doing this. That's yeah. Really thank fun. you. You still here? I guess you enjoyed that conversation. Well, so did I. Thank you for hanging out. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast and are financially able, go to patreon.com and search for Tangentially Speaking. You enter your credit card, tell them you want to give me a buck, five bucks, 20 bucks, 30 bucks, 50 bucks, 200 bucks, and then they'll just automatically ding your credit card and you don't have to think about it again. Uh, If you don't have uh, the money to do that, that's fine. Don't worry about it. Tell your friends about the podcast, write a review on iTunes, or just enjoy the podcast. It doesn't matter. I want to thank Basin and Range for that intro music. The song's called Bright Side of the Sun. And you can check them out at basinandrangeband.com. If you want to talk about the podcast, you can go to Reddit, where there are a few thousand people chatting about the podcast. Uh, I drop in and answer questions, post photos, uh, whatever. Pretty cool community there. Another forum where you can meet fellow listeners to this podcast is at t eight. No, sorry, tspeaking.boardhost.com. This has been set up by a listener 
to enable people to um, register and uh, their different states and countries so you can find people who live near you, get together, have a beer, smoke a bowl, eat some mushrooms, dance under the moonlight, however you celebrate these things. You'll find uh, like-minded spirits on that. It's Again, it's tspeaking.boardhost.com. Dot com. And uh, if you want to get some T-shirts, we have the Civilized to Death shirts, Sex at Dawn shirts, Tangentially Speaking shirts. They're all in my mom's garage. She will get them out to you in a jiffy. Julie, my mom, is one of the most efficient people you will ever meet. So you can find those on my website. That Chris Ryan, ChrisRyanPhD.com, TangentiallySpeaking.com, whatever. You'll find them. Just look in the store there. If you want to buy some other T-shirts from the same manufacturer, that's Shore Design T shirts they are fantastic i know i say this is an ad free podcast uh and this could be construed as an ad but sure design t-shirts have been supporting this podcast since its inception bennett who was the dude there decided he was going to support the podcast he sent me a bunch of shirts uh at an extreme discount to uh, help us out since bennett died the people who took over sure design t-shirts.com uh have decided to continue giving us the same deal that bennett gave us so be sure to use the discount code CTD, as in civilized to death, when you order anything from them and you'll get 20%, 20% off your entire order. That's the discount code CTD. And that's at SureDesignTshirts.com. Thank you to Carsey Blanton for the song you're about to hear. You can check her out at CarseyBlanton.com. She performed this little ditty, especially for us. Sounds like she was sitting in her garage. You can hear the birds chirping. The song is called Smoke Alarm, and it's a reminder to live now because you're going to die one day. This is for you guys, Bennett and Justin. Miss you. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're going to say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone. I don't want to give the end away, but we're going to die one day. Your body is an animal. Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation
a big deal if you wanna be free. Say what you wanna feel. Spend the night with me. I'm gonna take you up in my arms, and if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms. We'll dance into the ground.